Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another episode of Affirmative Murder. I'm Alvin Williams, joined as always by my partner in true crime, Francel Evans. What up? Folks, uh, I'm going to be quite honest with you. Uh, we're coming off uh, the Serial and Serial. Uh, I don't really have much on the docket. Um, there's some stuff I could talk about, but it's two men in a room. Uh, I don't really feel comfortable diving into that whole Brett Kavanaugh situation. I don't, I don't really know how to get my thoughts on it and without having a woman present to like guide me properly so I can understand some things. And, uh, so, and also I'm just not, there's nothing else in the news that's really uh, like grabbed me this week. No. If I'm being honest, like mm-hmm. nothing really big that, uh, I feel compelled to talk about happened this week. So, uh, I don't really have much to talk about on that. And what I do have to talk about, however, is, um, friend, you brought up a package mm-hmm. on Saturday. We recorded yesterday. We recorded Saturday. So, I would assume you brought it up. We recorded Friday. How about to say? We recorded, yeah, we, we recorded Friday. You brought the package over. It was mm-hmm. from a wonderful listener. Her name is her name is Alexa Green, um, and she uh, isn't in the Facebook group because she, I believe, only has Instagram. So she reached out to us through Instagram to let us know that to look out for a package to come uh, via the PO box. And uh, and I'm sorry, her name's Alexandra. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Alexandra. Let's call you Alex. Your name's Alex. Uh, so the package comes. We open it up. It is hands down like the most impressive package that we've gotten since we've been doing this podcast. The packaging was beautiful. It, she's from Minnesota, so it was this old school kind of Minnesota brown box with art on it. Open it up. It's two t-shirts in it with cool designs on them. Um, she put me on to this. Did you try the popcorn? No. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It's called Funky Chunky uh, Peanut Butter Cup Popcorn. It is incredible. Uh, I, I remember early on in our early days, for those of you who have been around since like day one, we were standing Z-licious popcorn, caramel apple pie flavored popcorn. This topped it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was only a small pack, so I only got a little hitter, a little test package. You mm-hmm. know, I felt like a fiend, but I, I dove into my bag, tore it apart. 
Uh, that was delicious. The funky chunky was delicious. Uh, there was some beef jerky in there. Me and my dog got down on that like uh, Lady and the Tramp. You know, I took a piece of beef jerky on one end. She took it on the other end, and we just met in the middle. You know, so that was beautiful. The beef jerky. I believe it was Minnesota quality. I don't know if it, it everything felt specific to Minnesota. She gave us a sound effects uh, machine, mm-hmm. um, some fortune teller uh, fish, which me and Sierra uh, tried and you terrified Sierra. So Alex, Alexandra, you terrified Sierra because it basically you put the fish in your palm and it goes, if the head curls, it means this. If the tail curls, it means this. If the whole thing curls in your hand, it means this. And hers, the first time she did it, it didn't move. And mm-hmm. that means, like, dead. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, what? This is not funny. Because mm-hmm. at mine, it was, like, curled up. It was like, you're sensitive. And it was like, ha, ha, you do one. Put hers in her hand. It fucking didn't move. Mm-hmm. And it said, oh, if it doesn't move, then you're, you're like, dead. You're going to die. So I was like, oh, this game, this isn't fun now. Mm. So, but it, it ended up, you know, we, we tried another one and her second one wasn't that great either. The second one was like, you're jealous, you know? So <laughs> it was like, all right, let's stop playing this game now. Let's, let's just forget about this. But it was just, it was a beautiful package of things. It was almost like a Minnesota care package. Like, here's a little taste of how we get down in Minnesota. Mm. And I just wanted to say thank you very much from the bottom of our hearts. We really appreciate you for sending that to us. It was It was beautifully packaged. I kept the box just for sentimental reasons i'm a bit of a sap so i kept i kept the box just i don't know what i'm gonna do with it but you know i'll probably find something to do with it at some point and so i just want to say thank you for that um but other than that i don't really have anything else to touch on fran what about you uh i got called the n-word yesterday oh excuse me yeah at work at, like while doing your route yeah what do you mean it was uh um, you gotta give the whole story you can't okay, just say I was that at, casually <laughs> i was at i was at work and i had some some old some overtime and it was Essex Day yesterday. What the hell was that? It's like Essex a is thing. a county, but that's like it's a day Essex, the, to it's celebrate Essex. Essex, and they like block off like half of Eastern Avenue. Okay, and it's just it's all white people. Sure, all white people's there. So a car come past, and it was like nigger. I was like, oh, like just ride past in the car. It yeah. wasn't even like an altercation. No, they ain't, people oh, ain't not that to savage. your face. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, okay, well, that's the first time it ever happened to me. So I was like, yeah. It's weird. And then they came back. Nigger, They nigger. came back around. Came back. Wow. I was like, and I was like, I had a good day up until that point because yeah. I never had that happen to me before. Right, right, right. No, for sure. So I was like, I was like, this shit is sad. That's yeah. Like, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the boldness that our president is um instilling that in people. That is, that's the kind of bravery that people have out here these days. I'll tell you one thing. I guarantee you nobody would ever do it to my face. As, I that's, promise that, you. you know I, I, mean? I talked to my dad. The, yeah. I talked to my dad about it. That's the coward. I was like, they... It was no way they would do that if they was walking down the street. No, it's the same thing as when you're on Xbox Live, and, yeah, you know, exactly, or, or, yep. or on Twitter or whatever. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like it's this, it's it's this false bravery where mm-hmm. you feel emboldened to speak your piece, mm-hmm. but from a distance. Yeah. Um. So if that's how you got to get your shit off, then you know it is what it is. But I, 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 um, over the years, I've never been like the person that's like, you know, hey man, you can't control people. No, I take that back. I have been that person. I've always been that person that's like, you can't control people's actions mm. and you can't control what comes out of people's mouth. Mm-hmm. But I also stand by the fact that like, don't call me that. Right. You know what I mean? Like if you, like we've been in situations, I feel like we spoke on it early on in this podcast, you know, like we might be all playing basketball and it might be some dude who's white who just feels like he's a part of the culture because he grew up around black people mm-hmm. and he might call his other friends his nigga. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But like, don't, 
don't call me that. You right. know what I mean? Because I, I don't get down like that. Right. You know what I mean? I can't stop you from saying it, but just don't direct your energy towards me, mm-hmm. especially not in a hateful matter. And right. I don't I don't really care to speak about um, people who don't look like me or people who don't look like a Chinese person or Asian American person or don't look like a Mexican person who get called crazy, wild, outlandish slurs. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to hear somebody tell me like, well, sticks and stones and all this kind of bullshit because you don't know how it feels to be degraded, degraded to your face. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, And you don't know how that feels either because somebody was cowardly enough to say it driving by in a car. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but if somebody was to say that directly to your face, you had every right to if you If you if your first emotion was pure volatile anger and you mm-hmm. cock your fist back and steal that person in their jaw, mm-hmm. you can't you can't tell somebody how to react to something. You right. know what I'm saying? So um, that's how I stand in, as far as that's concerned. Mm-hmm. You can try to say whatever you want. And if you got to say it from a car to get your shit off again, that's your business. I think that that's really hateful and gross and yeah. cowardly. But to, if you think I'm not going to bash you in your mouth when you say that to my face, mm-hmm. you got another thing coming. I'm not trying to hear all that. Take the high road. All that shit is that's cool. Mm-hmm. But when somebody is when you're face to face with hate, that person's in the wrong. Right. You don't have to be the. Uh, take the high road. I'm gonna let you just get off, get off your racial slurs to my face, person. Nah, fuck that. No, I, we we, we don't get down like that here on that pod, no, on this podcast. It was just like, especially it's two people who all love. You yeah, know what I'm saying it, we always come from a place of love. So right. It was just I like the first thing I thought was like that's almost funny though. I like, never had almost, it happen yeah, to me like, before, so it was like the fact that they did it, you know, in the car. I was like, it just shocked me that somebody was sure. like, I was like. Really? Here's like, a person just walking down the street. I hate them just because of how they look. Right. That's all. That's all they could. You. What were you going? You. you I was. Don't my, work I was or? like. I was standing at my truck. Yeah. And I was standing back and they saw it and they said I was like. Yeah. So that means they just purely. Yeah. A were trolling because that's mm-hmm. the society we live in. They thought it would be funny to whoever was in the car with them. Right. And B saw you and made every assumption that they needed to make about you purely off of the color of your skin. Yeah. I guess they the wanted a reaction from me, which I wasn't going to give them because he was in the car. But I mean. Get out the car and do that same yeah, energy. That, Fuck all that. that. Yeah, keep Fuck that, all keep this. that same energy. Yeah. When you're, if 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 I see you and I remember your face in that truck and I see you at a grocery store or something like that and I approach you, keep that same, same energy. energy. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like if exactly. you want to be a racist and all that kind of stuff, that's cool. But you gotta you gotta be prepared for what comes with that. You know, I don't I don't I don't subscribe to that idea that um, yeah, man. Well, you know, everybody has a freedom to do what they want to do. And uh, you just have to respect that. Like, no, nah, if you're a racist, that's cool. But let me know so I don't uh, um, uh, 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 patronize your businesses. Mm-hmm. So I don't come into your house and you smile in my face. But meanwhile, you think I'm just one of the good ones or something mm-hmm. like that. Those have been situations I've been faced with in my life. You know what I'm saying? I definitely have heard somebody be like, look, man, you know, no offense to you. But like that guy was a nigger. You know what I mean? Like so. And that was early on. You know, when I'm talking, I'm talking about like 13, 14 mm-hmm. years old when you kind of just got to. You take that and you go, oh, but like this person is my friend. Right. It took age for me to realize, like, oh no, that person isn't my friend. Right. Because if if you think that about them, then you think that about you think that about me in some way. Because I'm not always this guy that like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, let's talk about movies or like, oh, I like the same bands as you. So like, we're in the same mm-hmm. mindset. I get you know, I get ratchet sometimes. I go to yeah. a family reunion and the quote unquote black comes out of me. So mm-hmm. you might not like me if you saw me in that in that in- environment. So you are still directing that energy towards me. Yeah. Or, you just or, don't think you are. Right. Or if, what if it was a situation where... I'm different where, or whatever. Yeah, you're or one of the si- good ones. What if a situation where you pissed them off? Exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, oh man, you're just like the rest of them. Yep. And then, you, so I'm, I don't, I try not to put myself in a position where I'm surrounded by fake friends. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, and, and that's not a dig at white people or anything like that, because I know plenty of white. I feel like I feel like our whole Facebook group is full of ally white people who, mm. who kind of understand what minorities have to go through in this country and empathize with that and are riding and, and wouldn't uh, if somebody saw I feel like if somebody in our Facebook group was on that street and saw that happen and was able to, you know, uh, intervene in some kind of way, they would. They would say, no, that's not okay. Or they saw it happening at a grocery store. And that's not, it's sad that that's like, that's like the bar these days. Like, oh, wow. You know, like you could go viral these days for being the person that goes, hey man, don't call that person a spick. Mm. And you, and it's like, oh man, look at this woman, this brave white woman standing up to racism. It's like, no, I mean, we all should do that. But clearly we all aren't. So, you know, shout out to those who do. Even though that should just be the bare minimum in the society we live, we're all it's we're all in this together, man. Like that's how it should be. It's not, but I mean, I respect people and I surround myself with people who do believe that. Mm. And that was I'm I'm sorry that happened to you. That's fucking gross. Yeah. But at the same time, you also I'm sure understand that that person is a massive coward and yeah. would never do that shit to your face. Yeah. And so you just kind of gotta laugh at the sadness of yeah. that person's life. That that's how they that's how they get their rocks off, and that's what they think yeah. is funny. I mean. You could tell they were young young kids or whatever the fuck. And it was like, I told, because when it happened, I told Steph, I texted Steph, I was like, yeah, you know, this happened. She called me, she was like, you all right? I was like, I'm good. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stress that Because it, it wasn't, they did it in the car. I'm not going. I felt bad and I felt disgusted because they did it because it was funny to yeah, them. Yeah. But I mean, like, come on, bro. Like, yeah. if you're going to do that, get out the car. Fuck all this post Straight office up. shit. You know, like, that's. I'll take them all three. I don't, I don't yeah, care. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I'm saying. Like, if you feel that way and you feel like you need to get something off your chest, Pull your truck over and let me know how you feel to my face. But but they won't do that. And right. that's the whole point. And that's why you kind of just got to laugh it off. Yeah. It's the same. I laugh it off when you, you I get on Xbox. If you hear it, you get on Twitter and you hear somebody going on a racial rant. It's like your uh, your logo is an egg. Mm-hmm. You're hiding behind anonymity. Like mm-hmm. nobody knows who you are. Same thing on on Xbox Live, PlayStation Network, whatever, where these 13 kid, year old kids are just feeling like I can say whatever I want to say. Yeah. And, you know, that makes me sad in a way because, you know, there's this kind of um, group think that's like, well, you know, all the old racist people are dying anyway. So, you know, once that happens, no. we're all good. It's like, nah, man, it's racist kids out here. You know, right. like racism is taught. Yeah. So before they go, they might lean on Timmy, lean on little Johnny. Like, hey, look, man, we don't fuck with black people. Yeah. We don't fuck with Mexicans. We don't fuck with Asian people. Fuck them. We're the better people. And now that kid grows up thinking that. So I don't know if racism will ever truly be, you know, eradicated. But um, I think that we can continue to move forward in a direction where eventually we all see those people as just sad people to laugh at. And I think that's the direction that we're going, but it's never going to go away. But eventually, I think everybody's just going to be like, oh, you're racist? Like when everybody in, in 2065, when everybody's like, Light skin with curly hair and yeah. green eyes. That's and where it's going. Yeah, you know what I mean? like, study. That's, that's where it's yeah, going. That's, that's the way the world's gonna look in, in in forty years. And when you're like, I don't, I don't socialize with black people or brown. It's like we're all kind of black and kind of brown right. and kind of Asian. So, you know, eventually those people will just look stupid. And maybe the day will come when people like that. Not saying white people. That's obviously not what I'm saying. I'm saying ignorant people. Mm-hmm. Maybe the day will come when ignorance will die off because we're all just kind of a melting pot. Yeah. Also, is, yeah. to get off, I don't want to get too far. This, but did you see the picture on what happened on Two K the video game? No. These kids made because uh, you can do like a, a a team, so it's like three people. Uh huh. These kids made a team 
and made you made jerseys, so they made white T-shirts uh-huh. with KKK on it and put nigger on the bottom, and yeah. then they got it went viral on Twitter, and then Ronnie Two K, which is you know he's like the spokesperson, yeah, yeah, he was like, that's no, it ain't gonna be none of that. So yeah. they got banned from Two K for forever. Absolutely, so that's full on stupid because when you try to when you start to put uh, a video game, you know. Uh, responsible for what you're doing, mm-hmm. they can find you. Right. I might not be able to find you when you call me the N-word or put on your KKK shirt and beat me in 2K and mm-hmm. call me all kind of shit. But if I take a picture of that screen and I send it to the 2K people, they can find your IP address and, oh, and yeah. all that and, yeah. and let your parents know what you're getting down to, you know what I mean? Which I think that's good. I love seeing racist people get exposed on yeah. Twitter. That's one of my favorite things. Again, I don't have the capabilities. I guess we all do. If, we, if you watch Catfish, they do some crazy shit on that show. They're just like, mm, let me drag this picture into this, mm-hmm. and I'll find their work address. And all cool kind of images. Stuff. Exactly. <laughs> I love, I, I guess, it's not that I don't have the capability. I don't care. Or the energy. That's, yeah, it's like, I don't, it's like, yeah, racism sucks, but like, I don't care right. enough to like track you down. Right. But somebody does. And when they find your mom's work address and now your mom's getting blown up and everybody's letting you know, your mom know how racist you are or mm-hmm. letting your school know or letting your job know. I like that. I yeah. fuck with that. Because yeah. again, I am a person who says, you can think what you want to think. Mm-hmm. I can't stop you from being racist. But you should have to let people know how you, you should be, if you, that's how you feel, you shouldn't be hiding who you are. Let be bold about your shit. So I know, all right, well, I don't want to give them my money. Right. I don't want to be around them. I can avoid them. That's, that's, fi- I, let me help you. Let, mm-hmm. You don't like me. Let me help you. I'm not going to give you my money. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not like, I'm not going to let you laugh at my jokes and be around me, mm-hmm. you know, cause I've been around people who might, you know, can't stand black people or what their perception of black people is, but they like me, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, let me help you out. Don't do that. If you don't fuck with them, you don't fuck with me. Right. So don't laugh at my jokes. Don't hit me up. Don't want to hang out with me it's like, specifically. It's like, you know, it's an ex- 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 exception. Like, yeah, you're, like, you're cool. You're cool. Right. I don't want to be cool to you. Right. That's how I feel about it. Straight up. Like, I don't want to be cool to you. But they think that's okay, though. Like, yeah. they think you should be like, I don't want right, to be okay, somebody's cool. black. I don't want to be anybody's black friend. The black guy. No, I don't want to be anybody's. Oh, this is my there's this is the cool black guy I know, or this is my black friend. Like they're like you know, but they're like different or whatever. Whatever you think that is, I'm not that. And um, again, I'm sorry that that happened to you, friend. Yeah. But again, it just comes from such a place of like laughable cowardice that you can't even really hold that on your soul. Yeah, you know? I mean, it, it it did most definitely ruin my day. I I get that for but sure, but it was just because like, it's gross. It's like they wouldn't have did it in my face, so I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't try to. Think about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get out of that, man. That yeah. was gross. Um, let's uh, let's jump into these good vibes and try to you know clear things up a bit and get a, get some smiles on our face. That's right, folks. Welcome to another good vibe segment where we try to uh push those great clouds away. And put a, a smile on everybody's face, even though we're gonna we're gonna push past what we were just talking about. We're gonna dive into these good vibes and uh, um, keep it pushing. So, friend, I, I I think I'm gonna kick it off first this week. You cool with that? Okay, yeah. All right. So, uh, my story. Uh, shout out to Alyssa Turtle for putting this up in the Facebook page. My story this week is the story of uh, a young man named Blaine Hodge. Mm-hmm. So, Blaine Hodge. Uh, this story. The story goes like this. Uh, when a man entered a Bakersfield, California Starbucks with a knife on Sunday, September 9th, most of the customers fled the dangerous, 
fled the danger as soon as they could. But witnesses said one man stayed behind and defended a woman from the attack. Now that man, Blaine Hodge, is in the hospital being treated for serious stab wounds that could disable his right hand, according to a, gun, a GoFundMe page set up for him. While everyone was running towards the exit, Hodge ran between the attacker and the woman who was also in the Starbucks at the time of the attack. Police say a man with an edged weapon described as a possible machete mm -hmm. entered the coffee shop and targeted a woman with whom he had at one point been in a dating relationship. Okay. Let me just... I was wondering if it was a targeted attack. I yeah, read up on it, but I don't yeah, really hear you, I mean, like, the, most of the time when I hear th stories like this or see you know, uh, news footage like this, it's always a scorned lover doing some crazy shit, man. Listen, man, you give all men a bad rep when you do shit like this. I know nobody's thinking about that, but you cause women to fear men. You cause women to not trust men. Mm -hmm. You cause men to have to overcompensate for you being a fuck up and being nuts. When you do these kind of, and this is like the extreme. It's mm. also all kind of awful shit that men do that are not as extreme as pulling a machete on them that traumatizes women into not being able to trust men. Mm. But just move on. I don't, I don't, I don't understand how that. But go be sad. Listen to James Blunt cry, and then move on. You'll get over to it. be so angry that you're like, oh, you dumped me. Well, then now you can't date anybody ever again because I'm going to kill you. I mean, we've been through that. Hell yeah! We you went you go through it and then it's just a phase. That's you go the, through that's it and the, you move on. That's the key <laughs> word in that statement is you go through it. You go through it. There's another side. When you go through something, you end up on the other side right. eventually. You know what I mean? I've been in a basement, fucking sad. Yeah. No no lights. I live in a dank basement. Yeah. No no windows. Just like listening to fucking that passenger song. Cariaz. When, when you let her go. That song right there. <laughs> when you put that on. Don't talk to me. My phone is on airplane mode. I don't want to talk. You know what I mean? Like, for sure. We've both been there. I've never at one point, at any point, at any kind of dealings I've had with a woman where I've been like, I'm going to go throw acid in her face. Or any of those crazy things that you hear about, you know, scorned exes. I'm not saying women don't do the same thing because it goes both ways for sure. Yeah. Slashing women out there. Don't go slashing somebody's tires. And you're going to go to jail. Why are you going to go to jail for this? Dude, he wins twice. Now he gets to call you crazy because you went over to his house because he fucked your best friend and you poured candle wax on his car. You you think you won until the police come and lock you up. Mm -hmm. And you got he takes you to court and you got to pay for the damages. Now he gets to walk around like, oh, man, my dick is so good. I'm, I had her slash my tires, man. I guess I'm just a superstar. You know what I mean? Like, you can think you're hurting that guy and it might hurt him in that moment. But then he's going to laugh about you for like the rest of his life. He's yeah. you're going to be some crazy story, story that yep. he tells to his friends. And yep. you don't want to don't don't let somebody take your dignity away cuz you know for some fuck up that they did that you can't control. And that's out that's a message to men and women, you know. Even if it just is a situation where they just didn't want to be with you. Maybe they didn't cheat on you. Maybe it just was like, "Yeah, man, no, nah, it's over now." You know, don't go out and don't go try to get revenge on a person, you know? It's just it's just not the way to carry shit. Anyway, long story short, this kid Blaine Hodge uh, intervene in a situation when nobody else would, knowing that he could end up dying. And he said, fuck that anyway. I'm not going to just, I can't just sit here and watch this woman die. Because those are the two options. The, yeah. the, well, it's three options. The three options are you can run, you can sit there and watch with your phone out 
and be like, this is crazy. I, oh my God, call somebody, somebody call the police. Cause I'm, I'm on, I'm recording this right now. Or you can intervene and, and stop a horrible thing from happening. And that's what he chose to do. He got cut a couple of times pretty severely. Um, so he's had to get close to 200 stitches, mm. uh, on his, both his hand and on his leg. He got mm. cut a couple of times, but he was able to get the guy down to the ground and hold him there for a little bit until he got he got loose, but the police caught him a short time afterwards. Oh, okay. He's his name has not been released as far as I know yet. Uh the man who did the attack nor the woman, which is like, you know, cool. We don't need to blow those we don't need to blow the woman Her up. Name, I'm about to say yeah, yeah, we don't need to blow the woman. Up. I'm sure the man's name if it's not out already, I haven't this is this is from September 9th. I haven't um this might not be from September. Well, this story is this is from the day of, so I don't I haven't gotten a, a super update up to date version of the story. So maybe that guy has been identified and given his name given out to the public. But um, Blaine uh, has a GoFundMe active, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure right now it's like what is today the twenty fourth, twenty third, twenty third. It's been a couple weeks. I'm sure whatever money he needs, he has. Because this story has gone pretty viral. But if he doesn't, go look up the GoFundMe page for Blaine Hodge. And just, you know, if if, if you have $5, $10 to just donate to a guy who's a true hero, just toss him some money. Because this guy shouldn't have to pay for his medical bills for being a hero. I don't see how... how it, in, a, in a world that isn't capitalist, I don't see how you could hear this story and not go... I'm just going to rip this up, man. We got you. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. that's just not how we live. You know, people get receipts for, you know, their kid gets murdered at 12 years old and they get a receipt at their house for hospital bills. So um, I'm not surprised that this hospital was like, oh, you did what? Oh, that's cool. Well, that'll be $15,000 for these stitches and for you sleeping in this bed for 12 hours. So, you know, cash your charge, you know, like how how are we going to handle this? So um, a GoFundMe has been set up for Blaine. And again, I'm making assumptions, but I've seen this story a few places. I'm sure the GoFundMe got lit the hell up. But if it didn't, and it's not, you know how it might reach its goal and not take any more money. If it's not at that, and you got ten dollars to throw Blaine's way, do it, man. Because we, we, this is the when I hear stories like this and stories about kids doing positive things in community, these are the things that should be going viral, mm. not fucking bad baby and uh, all that nonsense. You know, like these are the kind of stories that we should be rallying behind and saying, these. Be- Come on, man. You know, catch me outside. Oh, yeah, bad um, baby. <laughs> that's her name. Bahad Bahabi. Bad. I thought it was bad baddie. No, it's like B H A. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. But these are the kind of stories that we should be championing, getting behind to encourage people not to like, you know, jump in front of, front of guns for people. Or, I'm not saying do what he did. That should be the new trend. But I'm just saying to stand up to injustice, to uh, get up, get up when somebody's hurling racial slurs at somebody and stand in between that and say, not while I'm here. Or to get up and say, hey, man, look, you know, don't beat your kid in this grocery store. Um, that's one of those things where it's like you can't expect people to not jump in and, and, and uh, say something. You're, you're doing something that people deem is wrong. And I think people should have that kind of energy to not go, well, just look away, man. That's not our business. That's the kind of society we live in these days where it's like, that's not our business. Keep it moving. Don't get involved. I think that's not how it should be. You know, I think we should. OK, what do you mean you do it in public? Like beating your kids? I mean, like what? Like smack them on the butt? Beat? I'm not. I'm saying no. Nah, I've seen. I've seen incidences where people are straight up in like fight. Kids screaming, "No, don't!" You know all this kind of stuff. Oh. If you're, po- you know, you give your kid, <laughs> don't touch that, smack on the hand, uh-huh. pat on the butt. That's not my business. But straight up, you got your belt out in the middle of the oh, Walmart. That's crazy. That's wild. And you can't expect somebody to not. Well, be in Walmart, like, oh. I wouldn't be surprised. 
Oh, that's. Oh no. I, I mean, if there was some kind of graph or something like that, it would be like belt beatings to to stores. Uh, it would be spiked at Walmart. Yeah, for sure. You yeah. know, you could then you could you know Walmart. Uh, if there's any more Radio Shacks around, that seems like a kind of place where just ratchet shit happens. <laughs> uh, maybe like a, a a Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, probably probably second. Probably Walmart and Chuck, Chuck E. Cheese, Cheese is yeah. like dead even. Yeah. You know. But so, but if you're anywhere that's not a, a Walmart or a Chuck E. Cheese, and somebody just got the butt, out, the the belt out, whipping on a kid, and not just on the, not that a butt is okay, but like a whipping a kid like with no discretion, like if it hits your face, I don't care, just like mm. swinging the belt, whipping their arms and their back, and all, mm. that's crazy as hell, that. you know. So, but there are people out there that can, you know what I mean? Like well, there I are have... people out there that can go, you're my kid, and you did something that I deem bad. So I can beat you like a slave. That's crazy. You know, there's a difference between corrective punishment, like you know, stoves are hot, bad. Don't mm-hmm. touch the stove, and being like, I don't even think you need to beat for that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't either. But I'm just saying, I, right. I can, you can, you can uh, rationalize that. Oh, okay. You know, don't touch outlets. You can get shot. Yeah. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. But being like, didn't I tell you to take the chicken out of the freezer? And just like beating a kid, like get a stick off the tree, that kind of shit. It's 2018, like it just shouldn't be going down like that anymore. It, I just don't, I just don't think it should be. Yeah, I agree. Um, but anyway, shout out to uh, Blaine. You are a true hero. He's an anime fan, so I'm sure he uh drew some courage from that and used it to, you know, whoop up on this assailant who was attacking his girl, ex girl, and um. Again, if you got a couple of dollars you want to donate to That's this GoFundMe. Wild as hell, man. I just man. couldn't. If it was me. It's not that much emotion. It's not that much that much emotion in the world for me to be like, oh, she's at the Starbucks. You get a text message from like a friend like, oh, that, she's at Starbucks. That and what you said to say for me to jump in and help. Oh, either one? Yeah. I yeah, I don't know, man. If somebody got a machete out. <laughs> <laughs> I might be like, hey, man, you don't, it don't got to go down like that. I'm, I might try to talk them down. Yeah. But just jump in front of the machete? I don't, I don't know. Uh, it would have to. It would have to be a machete could just take your elbow, a uh, bone off. Yeah, you know, it slice have, it off like me. It would have to be Sophia or yeah, like you. Family I, it, it would have to be, be my girl. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like if it, yeah. if you, it would have to be my girl. So this again, that's why Blaine Hodges yeah. is a real hero because he had no relation to this woman. He I just felt know. compelled to do the right thing. Mm. And I can't say even after saying all that stuff about how we all should be that way, I can't sit here and say confidently like. If I'm in Starbucks tomorrow and somebody comes in there with a hatchet and starts nah. hacking at a person, I'm gonna jump in that. I don't know, bro. I can't say that. I can't say that with confidence, man. That's mm-hmm. that's a different type of that's bravery. Bold, yeah, that's especially when you don't even think about it. You just you snap and just, act. Mm. Pure act. That's crazy. Shout out to Blaine, friend. All right, so my good vibe story this week is about a a guy that was in a wheelchair, but uh-huh. he's trying to go get his haircut at the barbershop. But the barbershop is located at this old building that's not wheelchair accessible. Mm-hmm. So, um, it says, when a man in a wheelchair approached the barbershop in hopes of getting his hair cut, this barber was not was not about to turn him down just because their building was not wheelchair accessible. Right. Victor Bargos is the barber at Joe's Upscale Barbershop in Webster, New York. Earlier this week, he was working at the shop when he noticed a man in an electric, an electric wheelchair out front of the store. The shop phone rang, and Bargos heard and it and it Bargos heard an electronically assistant voice asking if they accepted walk-ins. Oh, wow. And he knew that it had to be the man outside. Bargos, who had 
who has worked at the barbershop for the last three and a half years, says because they're bi- because they're based out of an older building, it has not yet been wheelchair accessible. Right. Instead of turning the man, instead of turning the man away, however, Bargos grabbed his tools and offered to give the man a haircut right on the sidewalk. Nice. It said, "Quote this from Bargos. Um, he definitely needed a haircut. <laughs> haircut. <laughs> it looked like he hadn't had a haircut in about a month. Mm. It was pretty shaggy, and I know how good it feels to get that weight off you. Yeah." I could tell that he's never had a good experience. I could tell without even asking him, and I just wanted to change that for him. That's good energy. Yeah. Uh, As it turned out, the efforts efforts were a success, and the man who was pleased by Burgos' attitude and skill, he later sent his aide to the shop, to the same shop for his own, for his haircut for himself. So it went, it went viral, and then, you know, this guy, Victor, you know, got praise, you know, Clientele Facebook probably went all that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, but he but this is this all got out by the guy in the wheelchair, right? Yeah, and also the owner of the barbershop found out about it, and you know he um, I I guess he put it out there also. Okay, but yeah. the guy did it strictly for the love. Yes, that's it. Wasn't that's no, how God yeah, works, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Those are the kind of people that get blessed, man. We yeah. just do something purely off of. The love of it, purely for the just to just to help a person. Yeah, I mean, I feel like anybody should. If you don't do something like that, I think you're an asshole. But there are people who would be like, I'm not taking my electric clippers outside. What if it gets they get wet or I drop really? them on the concrete? I'm look, man. We, this is the world we live in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is the world we live in. That's that's not the commonality. Is like, oh man, that guy can't get up here. Well, you know, um, let me go down there and help him out. It's like, well, you know, I only cut hair in this barbershop, so. That's fucked up. You know what He I mean? took his barber talents outside. Yeah. Hooked the man up. Had him, him feeling got good. Got him clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got him clean. Got his, sent his eight there to him. Like, hey, you know. Yeah. This guy's a good guy, man. Yep. You go, go, go give him your service. Go give, uh, give him your business, yep. you know. And, and then makes, many, many more people, I'm sure, are giving this guy their business. Yeah, so I, I think that was, that was really cool. I like that's that. That's real dope, man. I Again, I feel bad that that's the, like, that's a that's a not the bare minimum, mm-hmm. but it's not. So, and I recognize that it's not, and that's why stories like that make me feel so good because it's like I know that there are people out there who will go. Well, I mean, how about he go to whatever barbershop he usually gets his haircut from? We don't, you know, we don't have chair. What, what am I gonna move my barber chair out of the way? Like there are people who feel like this, you know, just the same way people might not cut kids. That's a less. That's a that's a. Not a that's less work than you know having to move a person and move your chair out of the way or mm-hmm. go to them and all this kind of stuff. They might go, nah, man, it's too much work. You got they move around. You got to put the little booster thing on the chair. I don't really deal with it, you know. So there are people who definitely would go, nah, man, I'd rather not. You know, I don't want to mess up or deal with that kind of. Mm-hmm. There are people who would turn that person away. So mm-hmm. shout out to that person. What's his name again? Victor. Yeah, shout out to Victor, and, and thank you for just being a good person. Shout out to Blaine for being a good person. Shout out to Fran for being a good person, able to control himself and not hop into the Charger yep. and peel out and and, and do <laughs> and, and provide uh, Texas justice to those fucking trash people. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're not going to dive back into that. What we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. And I want to give a shout out to Hannah Walker. Uh, this next song is was her suggestion. I want to take it. This is good vibes, but it's good vibes in a turn up kind of way. Uh, I want to play that jump around by House of Pain. So uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break. You guys, jump around a little bit, get that energy out, get that racism and that hate out of your system. And when we come back, we're gonna talk about some fucked up shit. So stay
All right, and we are back. Folks, just a reminder, uh, as of today, I believe we have seven days. We are seven days out from the end of the sticker competition. Uh, there was a submission put in this week that just terrified me. It was a blue baby hatching out of an egg. Yeah, it was creepy. With a sticker coming out of his mouth. I don't know where that art installation is, but it is a work of art because of the detail, but it is goddamn terrifying, and I would not want to see that coming out of the gap or whatever kind of uh, plaza or galleria that that <laughs> is in front of. Uh, but shout out to the listener who did that. Uh, it's escaping me right now, but shout out to you. A uh, great submission on top of many other great submissions. And the date for the end of the submissions will be the, the first day of October. So just a heads up about that. Fran, are you ready for my affirmative murder this week? Because it is my week to go first. Yes. Okay. Okay. So this is the story of Gertrude Banachevsky, a.k.a. the torture mother. Uh, this is a female. Yes. Sound like a male. Okay. Gertrude? Yeah. Sure. All right. <laughs> Gertrude Banachevsky. Gertrude Banishevsky, also known as Gertrude Wright and the Torture Mother, was an Indiana divorcee who oversaw the facilitation, the prolonged torture, mutilation, and eventual and eventual murder of Sylvia Likens, a teenage girl she had taken into her home. The case is unique in that while Banishevsky did play an active role in Likens' death, the majority of the torture that eventually brought about Lycan's demise was carried out by Banachevsky's teenage children and other neighborhood children. Wait, she did what? She controlled... She controlled the kids into... Helping her out. Hel- helping her torture and beat this girl. Gotcha. Named, okay. um, named Sylvia. Although Banachevsky did instruct the children on several occasions, it was later discovered that they took a large degree of Lycan's torture into their own hands. In what would later be called a Lord of the Flies scenario come to life, which that book and movie is crazy. So Lord of the Flies is basically the story of these kids who were on, I think they were on a field trip from a boys' school, and the bus crashes or the plane crashes, and they end up stuck on an island. All the adults that were on the bus died. So now it becomes a situation where the kids are overseeing the kids and the stronger kids took control as the leaders, but it's a bunch of kids making rules. The stronger kids or the older kids? Both. Like whoever the stronger kids were, whoever the older kids were, they were kind of the, there there was a hierarchy created. Mm -hmm. So like kids with glasses were like the weaklings and chubby, (laughs) chubby, chubby kids were the weaklings and then the athletic kids and the older kids were you know, the kings and the bosses and all that kind of stuff. And basically, it, is, it just chaos ensues eventually, you know. There's no rules. It's a bunch of testosterone flying around. And, you know, kids start getting murdered. They start killing each other because, you know, it's just survival and anger and all this kind of stuff. It's just chaos. So they were, they were likening this story to The Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. When she was convicted of first-degree murder in 1965, the case was called the single worst crime perpetuated against an individual in Indiana's history. Banachevsky was born Gertrude Van Fossen in 1929, the third of six children. Little is known about her childhood except that she shared an extremely close bond with her father, but had a frigid relationship with her mother. A further wedge was driven between them, between Gertrude and her mother, when Banachevsky's father died in 1940. The 11-year-old Banachevsky watched her father die of a sudden heart attack. Five years later, Banachevsky dropped out of school at the age of 16 to marry 18-year-old Deputy John Banachevsky, whom she, you know, got her name from, mm-hmm. by whom she had four children. John Banachevsky had a volatile temper, 
often beating his wife for annoying him. Mm. But, you know, whatever. Damn. That's such a like. What does that mean? Like you're gonna you gotta you're gonna be on eggshells all the time now. Yeah. Like annoy annoy somebody? Did you wash the dishes? Yeah. Like why do you keep whistling that fucking song? <laughs> you know, like anything that could. That's so. That's such a like, you know, case by case, uh, you know, feeling. The two stayed together for ten years before eventually divorcing. Gertrude Banachevsky was granted custody of their children. Within a year of the divorce, Gertrude Banachevsky met and married a man named Edward Guthrie who divorced her after three months Dang. when he tired of having her children around. So I just want to take a second uh, <laughs> to give a little public service announcement. Man, shout out to all the stepdads out there, man. It takes a certain kind of dude to take care of a kid that's not his seed. As, as fucked up as that sounds, and that, that, that doesn't go, I'm not talking about adopting. I'm talking about being a man who is secure with himself to say, okay, I love this woman, but if she has a uh, ex who is still in this kid's life, I'm going to have to deal with that relationship. Maybe her being frustrated by, it's hard to see your girl frustrated by another man. Mm -hmm. You got to be a certain kind of guy to be cool with that. You know, to be like, you know, Oh, he didn't pay my child support or he didn't come pick up his kid. I hate him. You know, you don't want to see your, your, your spouse have passion for another person. Mm -hmm. Cause hate is a passion. You gotta, when you're, when you feel nothing, you go, okay, well, I just, you know, got to take him to the court or whatever, you know. But when you're like, oh, fuck him, putting Facebook statuses up, you know, that's why men need to take care of their kids. If you're the guy that sees that, you're like, man, well, shit. Well, I mean, what the fuck? This isn't, <laughs> this isn't my kid. He knows I'm not his father. He calling me names and, you know, calling me Mike. You know, you know, you know, like you could put a mister in front of that, you know. <laughs> so it's just you got to be a certain kind of guy to be cool with. Mr. Mike is a stepdad name. Oh, yeah. It's like the number one stepdad name. You know, I, most of our listeners, if they have a stepdad, I bet you his name is Mr. Mike. Yeah. You know, but uh, <laughs> but it's just it just takes a certain type of dude to be cool with that. And it but it is a very rewarding thing, especially in a situation where you're dealing with a kid whose you know father might have walked out on them because they're going to they're going to resist you at first. Yeah. But when you break down that wall and they realize that you're not going anywhere and that you just want to be their friend and help mm -hmm. them out, I'm sure there's no more rewarding feeling than that, you know. Mm -hmm. I had a similar situation with Sierra's cat. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it took a little bit of fighting to break down those walls, but now, you know, he 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 he's like he's my kid, you know. Hey bro, you you fucking my mom? I'm sorry, oh, bro. That's a, I mean, that's I, Oh, I that's a, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, where did this go? <laughs> I was in the middle of the thing. I was like, are you accusing me of something? Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Yeah. I was like, whoa. Uh, yeah, especially when you're like, when you're like, set, when you're like, when you're like, that probably comes when you're like, if you're dealing with like a, a 17 year old yeah, kid, teenage, you walk yeah. in and they're 17 already. That's like an adult person already, yeah. you know, but like eight, I'm talking about like eight, mm. maybe like three to eight that a kid. But mm. no, nah, like if some dude, like my mom happens to live with me. If she brings home some guy, I don't care. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, that's her business. Like, I, I don't need to meet that person. It's not that kind of thing where he has to go, hey, sport, I brought you a candy bar. Man, if you don't get out, get the fuck out of my face. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a, hey, a grown-ass person, man. I don't, need to, I don't need to have a relationship with you, talk to you, anything like that. But in the case of a woman with four children, all of them, you know, under the age of 10, you got to, you know... That's you gotta get cool with them, or gotta, it's, the relationship's not gonna last. You gotta help out. Yeah, and this guy was like, "Man, this is old. Yeah. I, this is this is whack. I like you. I don't like yeah. these kids. Yeah. So this, they only get they only made it three months. Mm -hmm. So shortly after the divorce, Gertrude and John Banachevsky reconciled and remarried. The couple stayed together 
for seven years and had two more children before finally divorcing permanently in 1963. So altogether, they had six children together and were together like 17 years. Mm -hmm. Who knows how long that dude was just like, you are annoying me and I am going to punch you in your mouth when you come home. They had to take a or when, I, when I get home, you know. Around this time, the then the then 37-year-old Gertrude Banachevsky began an affair and moved in with a 23-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who further abused her. She became pregnant by him twice, mm. suffering one miscarriage, possibly as a result of the assaults by Wright, mm -hmm. and giving birth to one child. This child, Dennis Jr., would be Banachevsky's last child in all. I mean, last child. In all, she had seven children and suffered six miscarriages. Damn. Yeah. Rough life. Uh, shortly after Dennis Jr.'s birth, Dennis Wright Sr. abandoned Banachevsky and disappeared. Mm. I don't understand how you could give a kid your name and just bail on him. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's that's bold. Because, mm. like, uh, I, read a, I read a thing. I can't remember when I read it or I watched it on Discovery Channel or something like that. Um kids come out of the womb looking like their father and that's like a scientific that's like a biological safety mechanism to try to stop the father from bailing out on the kid hmm. you know like it's like oh I can't you look like me I can't leave me so on top of that you name you give your kid your your name mm -hmm. you know you're, you give your kid your legacy and you go oh nah, man this is whack you know I'm 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 gonna go to Colorado. You know? I would I would think it's the begin the birth of the child is like that's the good part, and then for somebody like him, I mean, yeah, and then it's like, oh, oh yeah, I, yeah, I gotta get up early and all that kind of I stuff. Trying to do this once the reality kicks in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Dennis Dennis Senior skipped town. She was left essentially destitute as Wright had been supporting her financially. She was now forced to support herself and seven children on an occasional child support payment from the unreliable John Banachevsky, her first husband, and by performing odd jobs around town, such as babysitting and doing other people's laundry for them. I, so I she, mean, that's not funny, but it's fucked up. It's like, I got $20 here. Yeah, like, <laughs> just damn. You're like, I have, you, I, we have six children together. Oh, you're like, that's her annoying him, too. Like, right. oh, my God, are you asking me for more money again? I have six miles to feed, man. Oh God, you, 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 you. God, will you just, 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 just get stop being uh, aggravating, man. Just go away. Mm. That's how people. Man, that's how people feel, though. I just gave you two hundred dollars six months ago. You're like, <laughs> I have six children, man. Like, what are you talking? What are we talking about? Financial problems were quickly exacerbated when Banachevsky discovered that her 17-year-old daughter, Paula, was three months pregnant after a fling with a middle-aged <clears throat> middle married man. Around this time, Banachevsky's health declined considerably. She was chronically ill with a number of unidentified illnesses, ceased practicing proper hygiene, and barely ate. Eventually, these factors began to affect her outward appearance, resulting in receded hairline, mm. sunken eyes, mm. and an overall skeletal appearance. Ugh. So she was terrifying. Ugly. Yeah, yeah. Ugly, yeah, sure. Terrifying, absolutely. A human being, barely. Uh, All because she was trying to support. Yeah, the children. stress, man. The stress. That's crazy. And, and um, we'll get into, she. you know. Women are strong. Women are very strong. Yeah. But we're going to get into... Let's not get on Banachevsky bus. Not yet. Right. Yeah. 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 But women are strong. Yeah. 
But let's just finish the story. <laughs> <laughs> let's finish the story, though. Um, Banachevsky began to present herself as Mrs. Wright, claiming that she had, in fact, married Dennis before he abandoned her, which allowed her to keep up a facade of respectability. I don't know how that's, like, better. So she lied and said, well, he left me, but we did get married before he left me. So and? I am Mrs. Wright. It's like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is like, as I read the story and I'll, when I get to like the points where I'm, what I'm about to say come into play, I think a lot of this woman's life was her thinking that people believed the bullshit that she was creating, mm. but it was so obviously not that way that mm. it just was, it was for her own sake. Like her, she had to have this fake sense of like, I'm married and my children are pure, but everybody knew that she wasn't and that her children weren't. So So she was trying to paint a picture. She was trying to paint a picture, but nobody nobody believed the picture except her. Right. In July 1965, Paula Banachevsky met up with with a friend of hers named Darlene McGuire, who introduced her to two new neighborhood girls, Sylvia Marie Likens, age 16, and Sylvia's younger sister, Jenna age 15, who was required to walk with braces due to polio, much like Forrest Gump. Uh, Paula took the girls back home where they drank soda and listened to records. The Lycan's mother, Betty, was in was at the time in county jail after having been arrested for shoplifting. So this town is just full of winners. Yeah. Uh, which left Sylvia to care for her sister. Betty had abandoned Sylvia's father, Lester, and effectively kidnapped their two daughters. When Paula heard of the girl's circumstances, she offered to let Sylvia and Jenny spend the night. The next day, Lester Likens arrived in town, having tracked down his wife. He ran into McGuire, who recognized the description of Le- the description Lester gave of his of his daughters, and she directed him to the Banachevsky home. When Lester arrived, Banachevsky introduced herself as Mrs. Wright. The two struck up a conversation over the course of the over the course of which the idea came up that Gertrude might take in Sylvia and Jenny as boarders. He had spoken with his wife at the county jail where they had reconciled and agreed to travel the country in the carnival circuit as carnies. She left him though, right? Yeah, but I guess, you know, when you're in jail and somebody comes and is like, Here, here's not jail. You know what I mean? Like offer their, pit, their pitch, like uh, you can either stay in jail and get out and go back to stealing or you can come be in the circus with me. It's like, I guess that's better than jail. <laughs> you know, like, you know, th- these aren't people with a ton of options. Yeah. Sounds not fun. Yeah, no, it doesn't at all. It's like, I guess it's better than jail, but not by much. No one alive knows whether Banachevsky or Lester suggested that she board the girls. Eventually, Lester agreed to leave the children in Banachevsky's care for $20 a week. Which I feel like is probably a lot, right? A lot then, yeah. Because like childcare now is like you can spend like three hundred dollars a week having somebody take care of your kid, the daycares and all this kind of stuff. So yep. twenty dollars a week, uh, probably a lot back then, but not 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 too much for Carney. Lester did not inspect the home before leaving. Had he done so, who doesn't do that? When I was you about to say, like, I mean, I don't even have kids. You do due diligence yeah, when you do know, stuff like that. Make sure they have a bed. Like, <laughs> which room is their room? Right. You know, but again. This this obviously isn't the like best town ever, so it's like, or people, yeah, or people. So it's like, oh, you'll keep my kids and I don't have to take care of them. Okay, cool. They can sleep somewhere in this house that I'm not gonna look at. All right, cool, cool. 
well, um, thank you. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. Yeah. And that's that's about that's as far as the extent goes of you asking somebody to take care of your children indefinitely. It's like, all right, well, I saw your living room, and well, they didn't care anyway because, well, no, never mind. I was about to say he left, but they broke up, so never mind. Yeah, she left. She yeah, de- she, she left, abandoned, yeah, so and he did mind. come look for him. Yeah, he did come looking for his kids. I will give Lester that credit. Mm-hmm. He did come looking for his kids. Kinda. Yes. Kinda. He came looking for him, and then was like, all right, I found him. Can Where's you keep him? Where's your mother? Where's your mother? <laughs> and then y- y'all cool with just staying here since yeah. y'all met this nice lady Gertrude? All right, well I'm go- I'm gone. Yeah, because I, I came to find I, your mother. I get your mom back. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I came to find your mom. <laughs> uh, you know she did that little trick. Yeah, you know you can't just find a, any woman that's cool with feet stuff. You know, so I just it's very limited in the '60s. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no. Had, had he inspected the house. He would have discovered that Gertrude's home had no stove or microwave, which in the 60s, like, microwave, that's like fancy living. Mm-hmm. But stove, you, know, you got to eat food. So had no stove or microwave. Uh, there were only enough beds for half the people in the house. And half the people in the house, including Gertrude and, uh, I mean, including What's Sylvia. That, nine people? Including Sylvia and Jenny. Yeah, that's like nine, maybe ten people. So they only had five beds for ten people. The only things Gertrude kept in her pantry were bread and crackers. And the most of the surfaces in the home were caked in the in a with a thick layer of dirt, Ugh. and only enough plates and eating utensils for three people. So this house wasn't even sustainable for the people that already lived there, and they just added two more people into it. Basically, if you've ever watched Hoarders, this is the imagery that I was painting in my mind while I was reading this. Just like a gross, nasty house, a layer that's of falling dirt? apart. Yeah, that's that is so nasty. Caked. Where you got to like scrape the dirt off. That's the house they lived in. And this guy was like, "Well, this will do." Did they explain the smell? Was there a smell? Had to be in a it? smell, but I mean, this uh. guy is familiar with carny life, so I'm sure it just smelled like what he's used to smelling. You know, shit, poor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> smell poor. <laughs> uh, it smells like poor in here. Yes, that's, yeah. that's fine. Yes, yeah, that's, that's right on par with you know. <laughs> that's what we expect things to smell like. Uh, the first week of Sylvia and Jenny's lives at the Banachevsky home were re- went rel- well mm, went relatively well. They attended high school and attended teenage social functions with the Banachevsky children, as well as church with Gertrude and uh, with Gertrude on Sunday. Okay. When Lester's twenty dollar payment failed to arrive, though, Banachevsky threw a temper tantrum, yep. screaming at the girls, "I took care of the two of you bitches for nothing." Okay, she has a po- she has a right for that. Not to take it out on them. But I mean, I like, want my money, man. I, I want my money. This we this is a business arrangement. I'm doing you a favor. I want but my, I mean, like, I, I feel, like, I feel like, I feel like a normal person, the extreme of that is first week is like, well, you better give me all my money next week, and then the level after that is like, well, I'm gonna drop these kids off at protective services. Like, I'm not gonna take care of somebody's kids for free. I'm gonna put them yeah. in the system. Yeah. This doesn't go either of those ways. Hmm. So just I'm buckle, sc- buckle I'm up. Scared. Click clack, buckle in, cause this is where it gets crazy. I know I, what happens. Do you now? She gets a job, and then she just she can pay all of all the. Uh, Wouldn't that be this, great if this was awesome. like Annie or something? Yeah, that'd be great. That's what's gonna happen. No, you, you listeners, I, I solved it. Sure, let's all believe what Fran thinks is gonna happen is gonna happen. But what I'm gonna do is I'm going to trick. I'm gonna issue a uh, sensitivity not suitable for work. Whatever it needs to be warning. She hits the second- lot. She hits the lottery in the sixties. Yeah. All right. Let's all believe everything that Fran's saying. I am, however, issuing a warning of graphicness coming up. 
but that could it could be graphically great. You know, let's just let's follow let's follow Fran's thoughts. But a, a warning has been issued for only the second time in the history of this podcast for me. <laughs> so I'm going to continue. Yeah, so she screamed at the girl. She said, I, I took care of you two bitches for nothing. Hmm. Before forcing them to lie across her bed with their skirts and underwear around their ankles while Banachevsky beat their buttocks. Shortly thereafter, Lester and Betty Likens came into town to okay. check on the girls. Okay. Neither of them made any reference to the beatings, presumably under threat from Banachevsky. Mm. So they came into town, like, everything cool? They're like, yeah, everything's good. Cool. All right, well, cool, bye. Yeah. If, I guess if they wasn't had, didn't have to stay, they'd have said something. Yeah, maybe. I probably still would have snitched, but that's just me. And uh, I would it didn't mention it, but I would assume that uh, uh, Banachevsky was like, all right, can I have my money? And they're like, here's the 20. And they're like, but you owe me 40 now. We'll get you that. We're going to put that in the mail. <laughs> and then that was late. And that's how you get behind. And you never catch up. Yeah. And then you're mad at somebody like, I just gave you money last month. You're like, that was for the month before. You're behind. Right. You right. still, why are you, you owe me money. <laughs> are you mad at you me? Mad, you, right. You owe me money. I just paid you last week. You're like, yeah, but that was from six weeks ago. You owe me money. <laughs> so uh, the next week, Sylvia and Jenny went through the neighborhood garbage, collecting old Coca-Cola bottles to sell in order to get money for candy. When they came home with the candy, Banachevsky accused them of stealing. When Sylvia explained how they had gotten the candy, Banachevsky accused her of lying and made her bend over the bed as, bef- as before while she beat her across the buttocks with a paddle. Shortly thereafter, the Banachevsky children came to Gertrude Banachevsky after a church social and told her that they were disgusted with the amount of food they had seen Sylvia eating. Like, why y'all watching this lady? Why y'all watching this girl eat? <laughs> uh, Mind your business. Banachevsky told Sylvia, Sylvia that she was angry that Sylvia would do something to ruin her physical appearance and forced the girl to eat a hot dog piled with condiments. When Sylvia vomited, Banachevsky forced her to scoop up the vomit and devour it. Soon afterwards, Lester and Betty Likens again came into town to check on the girls. As per Banachevsky's instructions, Sylvia made no reference to the vomit-eating incident, which is like the first time a beating is like, all right, I won't say anything. We don't know. Our our parents owe them money. Mm -hmm. But they made you eat throw up? No, we got to go. We got to, this, I can't stay here. Yeah. You know, but they didn't bring it up again. So her threats must be solid. Mm. The incident, which appears to have either triggered or coincided with the sharp decline of Banachevsky's mental stability, occurred in ni- in August of 1965 when she overheard Sylvia remark that, ha- that she had once allowed a boy to fill her up. Banachevsky inexplicably inexplicably burst into a fit of obscenities, accused Sylvia of being a prostitute, and informed the rest of the house that Sylvia was pregnant because she had let a boy touch her vagina. Well, she got like bionic ears or something? Well, you know, she's a creepy old <laughs> she's a creepy old bag of bones who's like behind every wall somebody's having a conversation. You know, nosy. Jeez. You know how nosy sometimes old people are. Just like, you know, got your ear like Yeah, but I, old people are not like Secretly, secretively nosy. They like and looking yeah. out the window, like yeah. staring at you. Well, nosy. she she was more secretively nosy, like behind the the door on the, the uh, exactly. Wall. Yeah, yeah. Got a glass up to the wall, <laughs> li- listening into the glass to magnify the sound. 
which I don't think works. Fucking plastic cup with a string. Yeah, put it behind <laughs> throw it into the room and then got the other cup around the wall. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. So, but the funny thing is, she accused this girl of being pregnant when, like, her kid was out here fucking middle-aged men. Yeah, and got pregnant. And got pregnant, but they kept that under wraps. Mm. Like I said, they she was she thought everybody was like, "Your family's so perfect," but everybody knew how crazy yeah. they were. None of her shit was working. Just mm-hmm. nobody was calling her out on it. So right. she she put so her she, energy onto this girl Sylvia. Like you're a prostitute. You're getting pregnant and you're having sex with men. You're nasty. Not my daughter. Yeah. You. Also, I mean, their parents do owe her money. So she's she's like on the, yeah. the fucking edge. Now. She has no way of being like, all right, let me leave this kid alone because right, right. this is my meal ticket. It's like I'm not getting any meals off this kid. Fuck this kid. And I'm crazy. Fuck this kid. <laughs> 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 Banachevsky then attacked Sylvia Repeatedly kicking her in the crotch When Sylvia attempted to sit down afterwards Paula pulled out her chair And informed her You ain't fit to sit in chairs From there on Banachevsky only allowed Sylvia To sit in a chair with permission That's childish Very much so She's very <laughs> petty in this story Around this time Banachevsky also began allowing Her other children to use Sylvia As sort of a plaything with the games ranging from beatings to being pushed down the stairs. While Sylvia's story... I, yeah, that's just... I thought she was about to say they was playing like a... They was playing doctor or something. I gave a warning, right? No. Let me, let me continue. No. Why, why Sylvia's story so enraged Banachevsky is still uncertain. It has been theorized that she saw in Sylvia the beauty and opportunity for happiness that had so long ago escaped her. And so encouraged and participated in Sylvia's degradation and torture as an act of self-loathing. Others theorized that Banachevsky's hard life and current living conditions resulted in a mental break. I'd say it was like a combination of both of those things. Yes. I don't, wouldn't say it's one or the other. It's like both. Uh, The day after Banachevsky kicked Sylvia in the crotch, according to Jenny, as an act of vengeance, Sylvia and Jenny told their classmates that they had seen Paula and Stephanie, Banachevsky's second oldest daughter, having sex with boys in exchange for money. So it's just pettiness all around. It's like, you've already done a lot to this girl, Mm -hmm. but in order to get revenge on you and your family, she went and told everybody that your daughters are fucking people for money. Mm Mm-hmm. When Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, discovered what Sylvia and Jenny had said, he came to the Banachevsky house and beat Sylvia. From then on, Hubbard, encouraged by Banachevsky, made frequent visits to the Banachevsky home, during which she would instruct the boy to practice his judo on Sylvia. So he just is doing flipping her and, wow. you know, judo is very much like a flippy wrestling kind of fighting style so it's he's like just like arts, ain't it? Thro- yeah but it's very much of like grabby it's oh, not okay. like punch i mean he probably punched her too but it's a lot of like hip throws and f- f- tossing people so he was just so like, what is like it's i mean so what she got her to like you stand there and don't move yeah and he just or just fucking... he, she couldn't take him you know it's like she could try to fight back but he knows judo that's crazy. So so first he went over there to like, quote unquote, defend the honor of his girlfriend by beating up a girl. And then Banishevsky was like, hmm, I like that. I can use this, right? Come back tomorrow. And then he came back and she was like, do that judo thing on her. You can use her like a dummy. And he did. And he's like, he's like awesome. Right. Yeah, cool. 
They only let us use rubber do uh, dolls at the dojo. Also around this time, Banachevsky got Sylvia's best friend, a 13-year-old named Anna Sisko, alone long enough to convince her that Sylvia had been telling boys at the school that Anna's mother was a whore. When Banachevsky took Anna to see Sylvia, she directed Anna in a violent attack on the girl. Soon after, Banachevsky told one of Paula's friends, a girl named Judy Duke, that Sylvia had been, had been spreading rumors about her mother and pitted the girls against each other in a fist fight. During the fight, Banachevsky instructed Jenny to punch Sylvia. When Jenny refused, Gertrude began to beat her in the face with her fist mm. until Jenny finally agreed to punch Sylvia, her own fucking sister. Yeah. But it's like, I'm sure Sylvia was also like, just just do it. Like, because yeah. that's her little baby sister. It's yeah. like, just hit me, man. Like, uh, don't get beat up. Let me try to help you. Because they mostly left Jenny alone because she had polio. Oh, okay. But then, you know, this lady Gertrude is never satisfied. She want, I think she really also wanted to get a reaction out of Sylvia. So she always kept up in the ante. It's like, yeah, fight this girl. And now... Your sister's going to hit you too. Hit her. And she's like, I don't want to hit my sister. Fucking hit her now. You know, so she just was just piling a lot on this girl Sylvia's plate. Mm. In August of 1965, the vacant house next door to the Banachevsky's residence was purchased by a middle-aged couple named Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. Phyllis, seeing the number of children Banachevsky cared for, believed that Banachevsky would make a good babysitter for two young children. No. Why would you think this? No. Why would you think this? Based on the number of children somewhere, you're like, I mean, clearly they're all having a great time. No. Let me just assume that she can take care of my children as well. I guess well. they didn't go check out the house. Of course they didn't. It's the 60s. I oh, guess people didn't boy. do that back then. Uh, she figured, yeah, that she'd be a great babysitter and that she would also be helping Banachevsky out by paying for her services the vermilions arranged a backyard barbecue so that the families could get to know one another during the course of the barbecue phyllis noticed sylvia wandering around the yard with a pronounced black eye paula proudly announced to phyllis that she was the one who had given it to her then under banachevsky's supervision paula approached sylvia with a glass of steaming water and threw it in sylvia's face in front of two people who were this is a barbecue to go Let's get our families to get to know each other and kind of see if we want you to take care of our kids. And that happened at the barbecue, and they were like, well, yeah. can you start Monday? Wow. Neither of the Vermillions reported the incident to the authorities. Two months later, Phyllis went to the Banachevsky home to borrow something. Over the course of a few minutes that she was there, she noticed Sylvia wandering around the house in a daze with swollen lips and a black eye that had swollen shut. To demonstrate how she had how it had happened, Paula took off her belt and began to beat Sylvia with it in front of Phyllis. Phyllis again neglected to report anything to the authorities. I, th I mean, this That's is like crazy. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, man. This is like, oh yeah, you see that bitch over there? Look how I did that. You wanna know how she got beat up like that? Check this out. And just started beating her and the woman was like, all right, thanks for the sugar. I guess I'll go now. And just left. Wow. Didn't call the police or anything. Nobody helped this girl. She's like, I didn't see anything. Yeah, it's like, so you got the, did you get the flower or, all right, I'll uh, just come back later. Uh, but, you know, like, that's crazy. Around the time that Phyllis Vermillion, Vermillion witnessed Paula beat Sylvia, Sylvia came home from school and told Banachevsky that she needed a sweatsuit for gym class. How is nobody at school? Uh, 
calling the police. It's, it's just it's this whole She story. got bruises and shit, right? Black eyes and swollen lips, man. I'm going to continue. Sylvia came home from school and told that told Banachevsky that she needed a new sweatsuit for gym class. That was the worst. Remember when you needed to, like, get a suit uh, outfit for gym? Yeah. You know, like... Yeah, we need fifteen dollars for the shirt and fifteen for the pant for the shorts. Yeah, you know, never washed it. No, oh god, stain in your locker. <laughs> yeah, gross, kid, gross man. <laughs> Sixth grade locker room full of just badussy. <laughs> uh, when Benichevsky told Sylvia that they could not afford one, Sylvia stole one from the school. Benichevsky questioned Sylvia about her new gym outfit. Eventually, uh, eventually coercing Sylvia into confession, probably by beating her. Uh, Banachevsky inexplicably segued from the topic of Sylvia stealing into the topic of Sylvia being a prostitute and threw Sylvia onto the ground where she repeatedly kicked her in the crotch before once more returning to the topic of the theft. What one thing has to do with another? I don't know, but that's crazy as hell. So you understand <laughs> what I just said, right? So she's like, so you stole that, right? Admit it. And she's like, yeah, I did. You're a whore. What? Yeah. Throw her in the ground. Kicked her in the crotch a bunch of times. And she's like, what the hell is going on? She's like, now, anyway, back to, back to you stealing uh, the <laughs> uniform. It's like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she should work for the government. This is like, this is how you like break a terrorist. Yeah. These like, tactics. That, yeah, this is like, this is like, this is like how you get a terrorist to confess to 9-11, these tactics that she's using. To cure Sylvia of her sticky fingers, Banachevsky burned the tips of each of Sylvia's fingers with a lit cigarette. Afterwards, she made Sylvia bend over while she whipped her with a belt. After this incident, the smokers in the Banachevsky home began arbitrarily putting their cigarettes out on Sylvia's body as a reminder for her to not steal. Okay, now, we've talked about this part, but I'm about to say before, Mm -hmm. where enough is enough. Yeah. At this point, I'm like, if you want to kill me, just do it. Have I have I described enough things that you'd be ready to die? I mean, because we, we you you done a story where the girl that had been tortured. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, and we was like, after but I'm just a while, saying, like, I'm just saying, as at this point in my story, have I I haven't said enough that you'd be ready to not be alive anymore. Almost there though, like the cigarette burns and shit. Yeah, I don't know. Cutting my, yeah. burn my oh. fingertips. Mm-hmm. Another thing that this makes me think of is, you know, actually what you brought up in the beginning of the show is like. And again, we're going to try not to talk about the person that's in charge of this country right now. But, you know, snakes rot from the head down, you mm-hmm. know. And because this woman was burning this girl and beating this girl and all these kind of things, she emboldened her own children to think that that kind of stuff is okay. Mm-hmm. And when a person in a position of leadership makes things that aren't okay seem okay, you give permission to people to do horrible things. And that's not okay. And this woman is awful, but her children are awful by default because they just were doing what they thought was okay to do mm-hmm. because their mom was doing it. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not saying that one of these kids shouldn't have been like, this isn't cool, mom. Like, why are we torturing this girl? Mm-hmm. Nobody did that. They all played along. But you can't blame a kid for following the the lead of the parent, you know? So, yeah. Sometime later, Likens went out again to sell old soda bottles for money. When she returned home, Banachevsky accused her of prostitution again. Banachevsky took her into the living room and told her and, 
into the living room of the home and forced Sylvia to strip naked in front of her sons and several neighborhood boys. On the threat of beating Jenny, once Sylvia was fully naked, Banachevsky handed her a glass Coca-Cola bottle and forced Sylvia to masturbate with it for the boys. Which then led to her not being able to control her bladder and they forced her to live in the basement after that. So during this period, Benachevsky took on 14-year-old Ricky Hobbs, a neighborhood boy, as her personal assistant. So this lady was thought she was like, you know, I don't know, Hillary Clinton or something like that. Mm-hmm. She's like, I need, you know, I need, I need an assistant. Uh, I, even though I don't have any money. Uh, when dealing with Sylvia, well, well, she took him on as a personal, a personal assistant when dealing with Sylvia. So that's how much effort she was putting into abusing this girl is that she needed somebody to keep track of the shit. Uh, Hobbs, an honor student from a middle-class family with no previous legal trouble, experienced a sudden shift in personality upon becoming Banachevsky's assistant, blindly following whatever orders she gave him. Crime reporters have since speculated that Hobbs was Banachevsky's lover and that she had seduced the boy into becoming her henchman. Banachevsky's children turned Sylvia into a money-making opportunity charging neighborhood children a nickel to gawk at nude Sylvia or push her down the stairs to the basement where she saw where she was now kept when, uh, when not being bathed or not put on display. She was kept constantly naked and rarely fed when she was allowed to eat. It was in some bizarre fashion, such as the instance in which Banachevsky insisted that she eat soup with her fingers. So she was just trying out. She was just trying out fucked up shit on this. That shit don't even make sense. It doesn't at all. <laughs> and like, what? What do you get out of that? Right. Like, you just like to watch her struggle. So, uh, when Sylvia was enduring endless torture, while Sylvia was enduring endless torture, Jenny managed to send contact to her sister, to her and Sylvia's older sister Diana, who was married and had a family of her own. Jenny outlined the horrors that she and Sylvia were experiencing and instructed Diana to contact the police to come and rescue them. Diana ignored the letter, believing that Jenny was simply displeased with being punished and that she was making up stories so that she could come and live with her. Also around this time, one of the neighborhood children who had been by to see Sylvia, a 12-year-old named Judy Duke, who they scrapped earlier on in the story, Mm -hmm. uh, Judy Duke went home to her mother, where she told her mother they were beating and kicking Sylvia. The girl's mother replied that that's just what happens when someone was punished. So again, nobody, this reminded me a lot of what people, those people thought happened in that documentary, The Witness. Like this, these horrible things were happening to somebody and nobody helped her. And then we find out after watching that documentary that it wasn't exactly what happened. But this is exactly what happened in this story. Yeah. Nobody helped Sylvia. Everybody had an excuse. Everybody had something else to do. Everybody didn't want to get involved. And this this girl was being tortured. Shortly thereafter, Banachevsky's reverend, Roy Julian, visited them as a part of a program he had to set to see each of his parishioners at their home. While he and Banachevsky drank coffee, she complained to him that Sylvia had been an intense burden on her claiming that the girl was a prostitute who had been servicing married men and had gotten pregnant. Although at the time, 
Paula Banachewski was several months pregnant, Gertrude Banachewski insisted that her daughter was a virgin and that Sylvia was attempting to pass off her own misdeeds onto the pure Paula. How you gonna lie to the man of God like that? Banachewski and the Reverend prayed for Sylvia's salvation before the Reverend left. So he didn't even ask to see her. He just took her word for it. Like, oh, she's a prostitute? Well, that sucks. Make sure you're in church on Sunday and bring some money to put into the tithe. Yep. That's that's basically what the point of him checking on his mm-hmm. parishioners were. Is like, sure you y'all still Sunday. coming, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Make sure you bring a check, you know, and, 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 and you know, and I'll see you later. Yeah. Oh, Father, I've just been so sick. Oh, sick. Yeah, yeah, sick. No, that's, yeah. Come to, tell, tell me about the church. Mm-hmm. I'm, about me, to buy, I'm about to buy this farm, so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I need that money. I need that money to come through. They want the down payment next month, so I need y'all to come through. I'm making my rounds to get everybody to make sure you come to church on Sunday. Right. Banachevsky and the Reverend prayed for Sylvia's salvation before the Reverend left. When the Reverend returned again a few weeks later, Paula told the Reverend during prayers that she had hatred in her heart for Sylvia. To which Banachevsky interjected that the opposite was true. Shortly after this, Diana came by to visit her sisters. Banachevsky refused to allow her into the home, at first telling her that Lester had contacted her and instructed her not to allow Diana into the home. When Diana questioned this, Banachevsky threatened to call the police and have her arrested for trespassing. Diana hid nearby the house until she spotted Jenny outside and then approached her. Jenny told her sister that she was not allowed to talk to her and then ran away. Like you got her, you got her here, man. Like I don't know, man. I guess you can't blame a kid. I mean, she was she was like 15 and Sylvia was like 16. But you got to trust that somebody can help you. Right. You can't just go, well, she threatened to do something to me. So if I tell you, she'll beat me. You got to think like, well, if I tell her, it'll stop. Yeah. But that's not what she thought. So obviously she learned a lot from seeing her sister get tortured horribly and didn't want to go through the same stuff. So she just did whatever uh, Gertrude said. Concerned, Diana contacted social services. This is, check this shit out. This is, this is how high this shit went if people not helping. And then now listen to this. Diana contacted social services. When a social worker arrived at the home, Banachevsky informed her that she had kicked Sylvia out of the house for being physically unclean and a prostitute and that Sylvia had since run away. Banachevsky then managed to get Jenny alone long enough to inform her that if she told the social worker the truth, Jenny would join her sister naked in the basement. Jenny then told the social worker that Sylvia had indeed run away. The social worker returned to her office where she filed a report stating that no more calls needed to be made to the Banachevsky home. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's as high as it can go other than the police. And somebody came in there and they believed her saying, well, she just was so gross and terrible that I kicked her out. I didn't want anything. In her. But she want... was there, though, right? She definitely was in the basement. Yeah, but she didn't know, though. Damn. She, she I bet def- why didn't she yell? But she yeah. didn't. Damn. She definitely was in the basement. They keep her in the basement. On, Octo- on October 20th, Gertrude called the police to come arrest a boy at her home. Robert Bruce Hanlon. Robert Bruce Hanlon was a local youth who claimed that the Banachevsky children had stolen things from his basement. So these kids are out here running wild, yeah. and she's beating this uh, this girl, Sylvia, and letting her kids get away with murder. Yep. 
Uh, so he claimed that they had stole things from his basement. He had come to the home earlier in the evening demanding that Banachevsky return his things, which I fuck with that energy. Like being a kid and being like, look, lady, I want my shit. Yeah. Go tell your kid, your kid stole from my house mm-hmm. and I want my shit back. When she refused, he attempted to sneak into the home and take them back. <laughs> Savage. I want my yeah. shit back. Huh? Phyllis Vermillion witnessed Hanlon being put into the back of a squad car. Now, remember, Phyllis is the lady that moved into the house and didn't do anything when she saw uh, Sylvia getting beat. The neighbor, and all right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So she saw she saw uh, Hanlon being put into the back of a squad car, and she approached the car on his behalf. She had uh, she told the police that she had heard the earlier argument between the Banachevskis and Hanlon over the stolen goods. Vermillion made no mention of Sylvia during her conversation with the police. So she came out of her house on the behalf of somebody who had just broken into her neighbor's house, mm-hmm. but never called the police when she saw a girl being beaten on two different occasions. That's crazy. And threw hot water in her face and all types of shit. She's like, none of my business. But then she saw this boy getting put in the back of a car and she's like, no, no, no. I was out here earlier. Mm-hmm. He just wants his stuff back. I just want to do the right thing and speak up on behalf of this young boy. She was being nosy. She was being nosy at the wrong time. Right. If you're going to be nosy, be nosy all the time. <laughs> Don't be, be a part-time no- nosy. You can be sometimes nosy. On October 21st, Banachevsky instructed John Jr., Coy, and Stephanie to bring Sylvia up from the basement and tie her to the bed, telling Sylvia that if she could hold her bladder through the night, she would be permitted to sleep upstairs again. Oh, great. When Banachevsky checked on Sylvia the next morning and discovered she had wet the bed, Banachevsky made her dress and then took her into the living area where she once again forced her to perform a strip tease for her sons and the neighborhood boys. Again climaxed by Banachevsky forcing Sylvia to masturbate with a Coca-Cola bottle. That's sick. When Sylvia was finished, she was allowed to dress. After a few moments, apropos of nothing, Gertrude brought up Sylvia's lies about Paula and Stephanie. So she's a straight up drunk uh, instigator. So after she made her do these horrible things, she's sitting in the corner. She's like, hey, Stephanie. uh, Hey, Paula. Remember when they said that you guys were having sex with guys for money? Remember that? So after she brought it up, she declared, you have branded my daughters. So I will brand you. Sylvia was forcibly stripped naked, tied down, and gagged while one of Banachevsky's children heated up a sewing needle with a series of matches. When the needle was orange, Mm. Gertrude used it to carve and burn the letter I and part of the letter M into Sylvia's stomach. Mm. She then instructed Ricky Hobbs, her assistant, to continue carving. Assistant? Yeah, she did. That's what, yeah. Wow. Her, her, this he ha, she had an assistant specifically for Sylvia. Like, you help me in all Sylvia-related matters. So she instructed him to continue carving the letters to spell out the phrase, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. The whole thing. The whole thing with a, with a hot sewing needle. At one point, Hobbs stopped and asked Banachevsky in a confused manner how to spell prostitute for him. So this is just, they are just in the like, a flyover town. Like, don't ever go to this part of Indiana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There aren't many parts of Indiana that I have. There aren't any parts of Indiana that I have any desire to go to, except maybe Michael Jackson's house if they turned it into a museum. But Indiana's pretty much a flyover state for me. 
and and this story didn't help. So they're like doing these horrible things to this girl, and the guy's like, "How do you spell prostitute?" You know, and then I guess they told him, and he figured it out. And oh no, Banachevsky wrote it down on a piece of paper, and the carving and burning recon- recommenced. When the process was finished, the tattoo consisted not only of actual of the actual carving, but third degree burns left behind by the heat of the needle. Mm. Satisfied, Banachevsky left the room, leaving Sylvia tied, gagged, and naked. At this point, Ricky, Paula, and Banachevsky's 10-year-old daughter, Shirley, decided to give Sylvia another tattoo, an S in the middle of her chest. The three would later... Superman? No. Which is what <laughs> I thought when I read. I was like, is it? But no. They don't read. They're stupid. They don't read comic books. Uh, the three would later become confused as to whether they had intended the S to stand for Sylvia or slave, mm. though the latter explanation would make more sense. Ricky burned the bottom Ricky burned the bottom curve of the S into Sylvia. This is how this is how stupid these kids are. So Ricky burned the bottom of the S into Sylvia. He then either cho- choked or changed his mind because he then ordered Jenny to come over and carve the other half. Although threatened, Jenny refused. Ricky relented and ordered Shirley, a 10-year-old girl, to finish the tattoo. Uh, the girl also either choked Oh, wait, the girl choked and accidentally carved the the curve backwards so that the number three is what was there instead of an S. See, they're not, they don't know how to do... They don't know how to spell prostitute. S. They don't know how to do prostitute. They don't know how to spell prostitute, and they don't even know how to write, write an, an S. S. Even if you're cur- carving it into a person's skin, which is horrible, that's pretty fucking dumb. Especially when a, half the job is done. But you want to know how to do the bottom part of the S. Well, no, he choked. He was like, I can't do this anymore. This is like, this is horrible. After he went, after he put a whole sentence in somebody's back. He had enough. And was like, now you do this, Jenny. And she was like, no, I'm not doing that to my sister. And he was like, all right, 10-year-old, get over here. She's like, all right. And just the did the way. hook and made a three because they're stupid. And then they have the nerve to like degradate this girl and make her feel bad about herself and make her feel low. And they can't spell or write letters. Banachevsky re-entered the room at this point to address the still-bound and gagged Sylvia. She said, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married now. You can't undress in front of anyone. What are you going to do now? Sylvia was ungagged to address Banachevsky. She replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. It's on there. I would be Which like, is what she didn't want. She wanted to. She wanted her to be like, "Oh my God, yeah. you ruined me." Yeah. So I like the idea that she never gave this lady what she wanted. She never broke her. I'd have been like, "You're right. Now let me go." Like no, that, that <laughs> probably that probably would have took it to and it's like, "Yeah, now you're absolute garbage. So we're gonna treat you like a dog." Which is, I mean, hey, I guess they can't treat her any worse than they've been treating her. But you don't know. You don't know. This lady obviously is like creative as shit when it comes to torture she's always drunk yeah in my mind anyway they they (laughs) never like lend themselves to anything but she does mention later on during her trial that she was on drugs during this whole thing oh i mean when you do the impersonation yeah it's 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 under the influence influence. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah so that's how sylvia replied uh hubbard then took sylvia back to the basement where he used her for judo practice for a period before returning home. So after all this shit happened, he was like, I gotta 
you know, I got to get back to the house soon. I was supposed to work on my move. So you mind if I, can I take her down to the basement? I got a, a new move I'm trying to work on before I go. In the middle of the night, Jenny Lichen sneaked into the basement to visit her sister, where Sylvia told her, I'm going to die. I can tell. Shortly after Jenny's visit, Banachevsky inexplicably went into the basement and brought Sylvia upstairs and allowed her to sleep in one of the beds. She was allowed to sleep until noon of the next day, October 23rd, when Banachevsky woke her. Once Sylvia was awake, Banachevsky and Stephanie took her into the bathroom and gave her a warm, soapy bath. After the bath, Banachevsky and Paula dressed Sylvia and then dictated a letter to her, intended to look like a runaway letter for her parents. For reasons unknown, Banachevsky dictated that Sylvia open the letter, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens. Stupid. The words which Banachevsky dictated were, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night and they told me that they would pay me if I would do something. So I got in the car and they all got what they wanted. And when they finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach. I am a prostitute and proud of it. Wait, so... She's she's she the... she she's telling like she's like write this down. She told she told Sylvia write down what I'm saying and as letter, if it's you. And the letter said Mr. and Mrs. Likens instead the letter of mom and dad. said Mrs. and Mrs. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Likens instead of mom and dad. Yeah, dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens. Bunch of fucking hillbillies, man. God damn. Uh, so she said they they wrote I'm a prostitute and I'm proud of it. I've done just about everything that I could to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she got from that fuck it from you guys not paying her her money on time when you said that you would pay her every Friday and you're late that wasn't in there but she definitely was like mm. in her mind she was definitely when she said that you know costing money she's like y'all should be paying your fucking parents don't pay me uh, um I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. <clears throat> Just as strangely as Banachevsky's insistence on the formal salutation, she instructed Sylvia not to sign the letter either. So this could just be like, who who, who is this from? Yeah. After Sylvia finished the letter, Banachevsky began formulating a plan to have John Jr. and Jenny take Sylvia to a nearby garbage dump and leave her there to die. When Sylvia overheard this, she ran to the front door, but in her emaciated and mutilated state, moved so slowly that Banachevsky was able to grab her as she reached for the front door and drag her back into the house. Once Banashevsky settled, settled Sylvia down, she took her into the kitchen and made her some toast. Sylvia attempted to eat, but then said she couldn't swallow. Banachevsky took down a curtain rod in the kitchen and beat Sylvia in the mouth with it. John then took Sylvia into the basement and tied her up while Banachevsky prepared a plate of crackers for Sylvia. 
When she offered the crackers to Sylvia, Sylvia replied, feed it to the dog. It looks hungrier than I am. Keeping, you know. That's pissing her off. Yeah, but I res- I like that she just kept this, I'm going to get on this lady's nerve. Fuck her. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going to, I don't want food from you. Fuck you. Right. You know, I, I love that. It's very strong. So she told her to feed it to the dog. Banachevsky repeatedly punched Sylvia in the stomach before leaving her in the basement. On the next day, October 24th, Banachevsky came into the basement and attempted to bludgeon Sylvia. First, she tried to hit her with a chair, but missed and it broke against the wall. Next, she tried to beat her in the head with a paddle, but swung it in such a wide arc that it came back it came back around and hit her in her own face <laughs> blacking her eye good to stop the sh- to, to stop the strange show hubbard stepped up and beat her assistant hubbard stepped up and beat sylvia unconscious with a broomstick mm. over the course of that night and into the morning hours of october 25th sylvia beat the basement floor with the scoop portion of an iron shovel next door neighbors would later report Considering calling the police, but chose not to. That dude. What's so his she name? spent the whole night. Ba- who? The, the assistant? assistant Hubbard. He's all That's in. His last name. Oh yeah, she's probably breaking him off with some crazy old lady, Ugh. and uh, you know, making him feel like you know he's like he's like sixteen, so he's like, oh, this is a woman, sex, yay. So whatever she needed him to do, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she beat the ground with a shovel the whole night. Somebody heard that and was like, should we call the police? I'm like, you know, the Banachevskis are crazy, man. Like, they'll figure it out, mm-hmm. you know? Nobody helped this girl, once again. Uh, on October 26th, Banachevsky voiced her intentions to give Sylvia a warm bath. Stephanie and Ricky brought Sylvia upstairs and laid her in the tub fully clothed. They realized, I mean, they took her out shortly thereafter when they realized she was not breathing. Stephanie gave Sylvia CPR, but by this time, Sylvia was already dead. Mm. Banachevsky instructed her children to take Sylvia's body to the basement and strip it naked. She then told Hobbs to go to a nearby payphone and call the police. Her house having no working cell phone because they're poor as fuck. Mm -hmm. When the police arrived, Banachevsky gave the letter she made Sylvia dictate in the midst of the in the midst of the commotion. I mean, no, I'm sorry. When the police arrived, Banachevsky gave them the letter she'd made Sylvia dictate. In the midst of the commotion, Jenny Likens whispered to one of the police, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. This statement, combined with the police's discovery of Sylvia's body in the basement, prompted the officers to arrest Banachevsky, Paula, Stephanie, John, Hobbs, and Hubbard for murder. Mm. Other neighborhood children present at the time, such as Mike Monroe, Randy Lepper, uh, Ruby Duke, I mean, Judy Duke and uh, Cisco were arrested for injury to a person. Mm-hmm. Banachevsky, her children, Hobbs, Hubbard and Hubbard were held without bail pending their trials. Stephanie's lawyer got her a separate trial before it was able to begin. The district attorney dropped the murder charges on Stephanie. Meanwhile, an autopsy of Sylvia Likens turned up over 100 cigarette burns on her body, in addition to various second and third degree burns, Mm. severe bruising and muscle and nerve damage in her, I mean, and muscle and nerve damage. 
In her death throes, Sylvia bit through her lips, Mm. nearly severing each of them. Her vaginal cavity was nearly swollen shut, although an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was still intact, largely discrediting Gertrude's assertion that Sylvia was a prostitute and completely disproving her insistence that she was pregnant. Mm. The official cause of death was brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain and shock. The case of the state of Indiana versus Gertrude Banachevsky, John Banachevsky, Paula Banachevsky, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard commenced in May of 1966. The prosecution sought the death penalty for all involved, including John and Hobbs, who were 13 and 14 at the time. Paula's time in court was interrupted when she was rushed to the hospital to give birth to a child that she and, her, she and her mother had insisted she wasn't carrying. In a show of solidarity, Paula named the child Gertrude. What? I ride for my mom. Fuck what you guys wow. think. Uh, Banachevsky and the children's cases were exacerbated by the fact that they were being represented by four different attorneys. One for Banachevsky, one for Paula, one for Hobbs, and one for Coy and John, mm. all of whom worked against each other and attempted to shift the blame against the other defendants, even though they were all being tried together. That's ba- crazy. Yeah. Banachevsky's attorney attempted to shift the blame onto the children, portraying her as weak, chronically ill, and incapable of preventing or perpetuating any of the abuse. The children's attorneys attempted to shift the blame onto Banachevsky and the other children. So everybody was saying it was the other person's fault. And everybody had a lawyer fighting their case. (laughs) Some of the most damaging testimony against Banachevsky was due to her own self-incrimination. She recounted bizarre tales of Sylvia Likens being a neighborhood prostitute and of her affairs with middle-aged men. Like, this is Paula. Like, this is your daughter. This is Mm. what your daughter was doing, not Sylvia. Uh, um, yeah, so recounted her uh, tales of being in having affairs with middle-aged men who were married, as well as accusing her of frequently starting fights in the home. To corroborate Banachevsky's testimony, 11-year-old Marie was called to the stand. Initially, Marie backed up everything her mother had said, until during cross-examination, she suddenly screamed, God help me, before admitting everything she said was a lie and went on to recount graphic, blunt details about how her mother and her siblings had tortured and murdered Sylvia. The young girl's shocking turn against her own family was largely responsible for the eventual verdict. Banachevsky was found guilty of murder in the first degree. To the shock of the citizens of Indianapolis, she did not receive the death penalty, but rather life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Paula Banachevsky was convicted of second-degree murder. She appealed and was granted a new trial. But before it began, she struck a plea bargain and plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. She served three years in prison and was then paroled. John John Banachevsky, Hubbard, and Hobbs were each convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile detention facility. By the time... Now 17-year-old Hobbs was released, the severity of his crimes had sunk in, and he suffered a nervous breakdown. He began a regimen of heavy chain smoking, which had severely decayed his lungs by the time he was 20. By the time he was 21, he was dead of lung cancer. And I'm sorry to say this, but... In three years? 
Yeah, from 17? 17 to 21. He was dead by 21 from lung cancer. Wow. That's God, man. I know that he was young That's and whatever, crazy. but like you can't you can't do so much amount of dirt in your life, even if it's just a short amount of time, and not expect the karma pendulum to swing back the other way. Yeah. So I understand that he was following his mom's lead or whatever, but he had every right to at any point in that at 16 years old to say, this is wrong and I'm not going to participate in this. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. And he had to live with that. And it caused him to have a nervous breakdown and eventually die from lung cancer. Mm. Three years after uh, finishing his sentence. Banachevsky appealed and was granted a new trial. And was once again found guilty, though this time she was sentenced to 18 years to life. Over the course of the next 18 years, Banachevsky became a model prisoner, working in the sewing shop and becoming a den mother to younger female inmates. By the time she came up for parole in 1985, she had earned the prison nickname Mom. The news of Banachevsky's parole hearing sent shockwaves through the Indiana community. Jenny Likens and her family appeared on television to speak out against Banachevsky. The members of two anti-crime groups, uh, Protect the Innocent and Society's League Against Molestation, traveled to Indiana to oppose Banachevsky's parole and, su and support the Likens family, beginning a sidewalk picket campaign. Over the course of two months, the group collected 4,500 signatures from the citizens of Indiana demanding that Banachevsky be kept behind bars. In spite of all of this, Banachevsky was granted parole. During the hearing, she gave the following confession, which was trash. It actually kind of made me mad. So her confession was, I'm not sure what role I had in it because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. But I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. That's basically saying, like, I mean, I don't really remember what happened, but, I mean, I did it. You know? That's not saying... What drug she was on? The drug of being a hater. <laughs> <laughs> she was jealous of this girl because when she was 16, she got pregnant and married and didn't get to live her life. So she's like, fuck you. And you're stupid. And But didn't want to do it to a daughter, though. Exactly. That's crazy. Banachevsky walked out of prison on, no on December 4th, 1985, and traveled to Iowa under the name Nadine Van Fossen. She died there of lung cancer in 1990. The fates of the Banachevsky children remains largely unknown. Paula Banachevsky moved to Iowa and assumed a new identity. Internet rumors claim that she is still alive and lives mm -hmm. on a farm somewhere in Iowa in the Iowa countryside. Wait, now, what, what was this written, this... This is from this is from 2017. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, shit. I want to know what the... Uh. I mean, the mom in 1985 was like 60. So her kids, now, I mean, if they're still alive, they're no older than 60. I mean, I want to know what the post... What whoever posted was like... Anybody ever heard the story of so and so? Oh, this I bet is... you could. I bet you could look the, look up these names, and mm -hmm. people probably have photos of like a woman at a grocery store. That they're like, I'm pretty sure this is Paula. That's crazy. Paula Banachevsky. You know, for sure. Somebody in Iowa, the Iowa chapter of the you know of Reddit definitely has yeah. like I'm, photos yeah. oh, of people yeah. that they're like, this is Stephanie Banachevsky. You can see by the age. They got a photo of her as a kid, and that woman mm -hmm. a photo now. Yeah, That's Reddit. Crazy. Reddit is on it. Oh yeah. That's uh, crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so she walked out of prison and, and moved to Iowa, but she was dead within five years of um, her parole. Mm. And it is believed that her family is still scattered in the Iowa area under different names. Uh, Paula, Pan Paula Banachevsky moved to Iowa and assumed a new identity. 
uh, Stephanie Banachevsky became a school teacher and assumed a new name. John Banachevsky changed his name to John Blake and worked as a truck driver before becoming a real estate agent and a minister. He was never arrested again. He married and had three children and has a and has lived in anonymity, only surfacing briefly in 1998 in the wake of the Jonesboro massacre to speak for the first time about the Likens murder, saying that the family took full responsibility or saying that he took full responsibility for his role in the murder and that a harsher sentence would have been more just. I don't know why the Jonesboro massacre made him come out to speak. <laughs> But he came out and was like, yeah, man, uh, I did that and it was fucked up. And then I, if, if they would have gave me 30 years in prison, I wouldn't have. I, it it would have been completely justified. Mm-hmm. So that was the story of uh, Gert- of Gertrude Banachevsky, also known as the torture mother. Mm. Uh, friend, do you have any questions? What Did they ever say what the parents of... Um, no. Nothing? They didn't. They didn't say. Mm. I mean, um, I would assume... That Jenny either went to go live with her sister or went to go live with her parents because she did grow up and then try to stop Gertrude from getting out of prison when mm-hmm. she wanted to uh, ask for parole. Like she still she had her own family at that point, mm-hmm. so she found some kind of support system. But no, they didn't say like her family. When they say Jenny and her family, they might have met her parents, but they didn't say specifically right. her parents because her parents should be they should feel awful. Right. They should. Yeah. They should be held accountable too. But I don't know. Um, but yeah, if you don't have any more questions. I'm going to go ahead and um, Mm -hmm. jump to a break because we are, this went, that went long, folks. Uh, Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. And um, when we come back, it's Fran's turn to close out the show and tell you some fucked up shit. So stay tuned. All right, folks. And we are back. Fran, I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to you. Yeah. Um, So my affirmative murder this week is about Arthur Shawcross. Okay. Also known as the, the Genesee River Killer. Okay. Yeah. So Shawcross was born in Kittery, Maine. The first of four children of Arthur Roy Shawcross and Elizabeth Betty Shawcross. His family moved to Watertown in New York State when he was young, while several later tests showed Shawcross' intelligence to be subnormal or even borderline retarded. Mm. He received he received A's and B's in his first two years of grade school, but was later tested to have an IQ of 86. Yeah, that's pretty low. Signifying below average intelligence. However, when tested in the Army, Shawcross scored just above average in intelligence tests, scoring 105. Upon entry, he scored 105 upon entry and 108 at his discharge. Mm. This was also the case with the intelligence test he underwent while on trial for ni- on trial in 1990 and scoring 107. Okay. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of. Uh, well, those IQ tests are IQ very test. biased, man. Um, <laughs> that's what the, I read a study that says like, um, there's a reason that a lot of times black people score lower on those t- tests. It's just because they, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of relativity questions that don't make sense to, you know, that a black person can't relate to. Mm-hmm. Again, Timmy has eight apples, and if he grabs the apples and that kind of thing, where it's like. You might they might misunderstand the phrasing of the question more so than not understanding how to do the equation itself. Mm-hmm. They just don't understand the the scenario. Okay, you know, Mike is on his bike and he goes to Steve's house and they go and you know play baseball. And like what? I never had a bike. Yeah, you know, it's like <laughs> what you know. So so those IQ tests, it makes sense that you know you might score low low on one but higher on another one because the the questions might not be as confusing. Mm. 
So Shaw Cross said throughout his childhood he was a frequent bet bedwetter. Yeah. He later claimed his mother would insert foreign objects into his rectum. That's two. That his mother performed oral sex on him when he was nine. Oh wow. And that during junior high school he had sexual relations with his sister. Oh, he had he didn't have a shot. He didn't have a chance at no. all. Shawcross had a reputation at school as a bully and would frequently act out violently. He dropped out of high school in nineteen sixty. In April of nineteen six in April of nineteen sixty seven, he was drafted by the army at age twenty one. Mm. At this time, Shawcross divorced his first wife and gave up the rights to their 18-month-old son, whom he never saw again. He served on tour of duty in Vietnam, where he, where he boosted of grotesque combat exploits, such as, quote, beheading Mama Sands and nailing their heads to trees and warning the Viet Cong. Oh. Though, in fact, he never saw combat. After Vietnam, he was stationed in Fort Sill and in Lawton, Oklahoma, as an armorer. His second wife, Linda, experienced several aspects of his disturbing behavior, especially his penchant of starting fires. Oh, man. So that's all, that's all of them. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yep. An army psych- psychiatrist told her that Shawcross derived sexual enjoyment from fire starting. How? Hot <laughs> like, so never heard Nellie's just getting hot in here? You know that's about arson, right? Yeah, yeah. That's but what I I'm mean, saying. you know, it's, that's 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 the arsonist song. That's Nelly. Clearly, when he's writing that song, Nelly is an arsonist, and he likes for it to get hot in here. So no. you gotta just listen to that song to understand. No, no. that's sexy. No, no? All right, well, nope. No. To each his own, man. Nope. Nope. Tomato, tomato. No. <laughs> <laughs> Again, no. <laughs> After his discharge from the Army, Shawcross moved with his wife from Oklahoma to Clayton. Clayton, New York. Mm-hmm. That again. After his discharge from the Army, Shawcross moved his family from Oklahoma to Clayton, New York. His wife would soon divorce him. He began committing crimes such as arson and burglary. Mm. His offenses earned him a five-year sentence in Attica Correctional Facility and later Auburn Correctional Facility. After serving 22 months, he was granted an early release in October 1971, in part due to the role in the rescue of a prison guard during a riot. Mm, good Samaritan. Doesn't give you the right to let somebody go early. Yeah. But it's like, how about, good job, man. Yeah. Here's an extra, <laughs> here's an extra uh, cookie with yeah, your Yeah, I mean, you're in, you're in prison. Yeah. You did something I'm, to be in prison. <laughs> I don't think that's how prison works. Like, you do something bad to get in prison, and you do, do something, something good to get out, to get out of prison. <laughs> that's not how that works. Right. Shawcross returned to Watertown, eventually getting a job with the Watertown Public Works Department and marrying for the third time. That's the charm. On May 7, 1972, he raped and killed 10-year-old Jack Owen Blake, All right, well. his first known victim, after luring the boy into some woods in Watertown. Four months later, on September 2nd, he raped and killed 8-year-old Karen Ann Hill, mm. who had been visiting Watertown with her mother for the Labor Day weekend. Damn. Arrested in October, he confessed to both killings. Under the terms of a plea bargain, he agreed to reveal the location of Blake's body, and in return, he was permitted to plead guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter in the Hill case. He murdered her, right? Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, if I tell you where the body of, of one of the people I murdered is, 
y'all will let me not say I murdered the other one. Right. It was more of an accident. How do you act? Come on, man. All other charges were dropped, and he received 25 years and 25 years sentence in Greenhaven Correctional Facility. A word? For a double murder? Yes. All right. Well, a murder manslaughter. All right. <laughs> cool. After 12 years, inexperienced prison staff and social workers concluded that Shaw Cross was, quote, no longer dangerous, disregarding the warning, disregarding the warnings of psychiatrists. They told that. That's crazy, man. That's crazy as hell <laughs> to be like, look, I know what that lady said, but I mean, he seems like he's, he's, right. he seems like he's learned his lesson, man. So he'll only serve 12 years. That's not what you're Is that what you're saying? They yeah. let him out of jail. Yes. They let him out of prison before a whole decade plus before he was supposed to be out. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So disregarding the warnings of a psychiatrist who assessed Shaw Cross as a schizoid psychopath. He was released on parole in April 1987. He had difficulty settling down in communities as the as the neighbors would protest his presence and employees would fire him. They knew who he was. Yeah. And he got to register as a sex offender probably. He raped, he raped a kid. He first moved into Binghamton, New York, then, reloc- then relocated in- to Delhi, New York, with his girlfriend, Rosemary Wiley. When Delhi resident- residents became aware of Shawcross' presence, the couple moved to nearby Fleischmann's, New York. I hope I'm saying it right. Only to be met... With hostility there as well. So anywhere they went, it yeah, was... Yeah, it's not them. I mean, it's it was you. still in New York. Yeah, it's not them. It's not like, oh, <laughs> these people in Fleisch, Fleischmann suck. Let's go somewhere else. It's like, no, I mean, it's, it's going to be this anywhere you go. Right. You killed kids. Finally, in late June 1987, Shaw Cross parole officer moved him, moved him and Wiley into a transient hotel in Rochester, New York, but failed to notify Rochester authorities of this action. In mid-October, Shaw Cross and Wiley found more permanent, a more, a, a more stable home. Yeah. Than what they had before. In March 1988, Shaw Cross began murdering again. Of course he did. Primarily sex workers in the area. Before his capture, less than two years later, he was convicted of 11 murders. Damn. With twelve with with a twelfth not officially charged to him. The ages were from 20 to 59. His Damn. 59 was the oldest. All the victors, all the victims were murdered in Monroe County, except for Gibson, who was killed in neighboring Wayne County. The retired detective Robert Capel has argued that the detective investigating the case over relied on the concept, the concept of his MO. All at times searching for multiple suspects due to small difference in profiles of each victim. June Cicero's body was discovered by aerial surveillance on January 3rd, 1990. That's one of his victims. Mm-hmm. Police arrested Shaw Cross two days later on January 5th of 1990. He had been spotted by a police surveillance team standing near his car, apparently urinating on a bridge over Salmon Creek upon whose frozen waters the body of his final victim was dumped. Oh. Yeah. So, and the... In November 1990, Shaw Cross was tried by Monroe County First Assistant District Attorney Charles Saragusa for the ten murders of for the ten murders in Monroe County. Shaw Cross pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Of course he did. Yeah. With testimony from psychiatrist 
Dorothy Lewis that he had brain damage and multiple personality disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Jesus. <laughs> and had been sexually abused as a child. Just going to lay it all out there. Yep. Yeah. Shaw Cross, who had served at Vietnam in the 4th Supply and Transport Company of the 4th, of the 4th Infantry Division, had told many outlandish tales of murder, murderous activities, including cannibalism. Jesus. Often perpetrated while alone in the jungle. From the time Shaw Cross returned from his tour of duty, he told acquaintances of seeing American soldiers, quote, skin from their neck to their ankles, and claimed he had decapita- decapitated two women and had victimized placing their, their heads on poles. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, I mean, do you believe? Like, <laughs> after what he did, it's like, do you still not believe him? I mean, that right. sounds pretty crazy, but he he might have did something. It's not hard to believe that he might have did something while he was over there in Vietnam. But that's kind of crazy talking about putting heads on sticks and eating people and yeah. seeing people get skinned. FBI criminal profiler Robert Ressler reviewed the PTSD claim on behalf of the prosecution before the trial. Ressler wrote that, quote, his claim of having witnesses. Where did it go? Ressler wrote that, quote, his claim of having witnessed wartime atrocities was patently outrageous <laughs> and untrue. He ain't got that. <laughs> he ain't got that. Right. He don't got PTSD. He's lying. Prosecution psychiatrist Dr. Park said Shaw Cross had antisocial personality disorder. And all kinds of shit. Yeah. Dude, I mean. They went up there and just said he had all the shit. Yeah. That's and the, he has asthma. Yeah. So Shaw Cross was held at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York, until he died on November 10th, 9th of 2008 at Albany Medical Center. Mm. In 2003, Shaw Cross was interviewed by British reporter Catherine English for a documentary on cannibalism. Oh. Shaw Cross bragged about slicing out and eating vulvas. Oh. Of three victims. That's disgusting. But refused to discuss his earlier claim of eating the, geni- the genitals of his first victim, Jack Blake. The little boy. Yep. So he was like, I'll tell you about how I eat vaginas, but I'm not I'm not going into that about the little boy. Yeah. That's too far. I, Fuck you. The picture of him is, he don't even look like, he looks crazy in his mugshot. Uh-huh. But I mean, like, in other pictures, he got a picture with his, like, his family. He looks like... Just a, a big. He's a big dude. He's like six foot three. Just looks like a friend, like a regular old guy. Yeah. No, no. That's what they always he got say. Got like a big belly. He got his pants all high. Got glasses. That's what they always <laughs> say, man. Um, he was just a nice guy, man. Quiet. Yep. So officials said that Shaw Cross complained of of a pain in his leg on the afternoon of November tenth, two thousand eight. His date of death, he was taken to Albany Medical Center, where he went into cardiac arrest. And Shawcross was dead at 9.50 p.m. He was cremated. So, um... Um, uh, Rest in peace. I mean, I don't give a shit. Yeah, good riddance. (laughs) So so he he had a pain in his leg, and that was... He had a heart attack of some kind. All right. I always think of the arm. It was probably what God was like, hey, it's about to be your time. It's a wrap for you. (laughs) I'm going to just give you a little pain in your leg. And cut. (laughs) God yell cut on your life. Yeah, that's crazy. So that was Arthur Shawcross. The Genesee River Killer. Okay, I, that was that was short and graphic. Yeah, but also for all you listeners out there, also to you, um, for me, it's about to start getting a little busy for me. Okay, holidays are coming up. 
So I got my man GTA back on the po- on the payroll. Um, GTA. GTA. I said JTA. Who? Come on, man. Got him back hey. on the payroll, so he's gonna be doing my stories for me from from here on out. Come on, man. Getting busy, man. I got. I called him up the other day. You know, he was he was still on vacation. I don't know where he was, but he said he was still on vacation with his family. So you know. I'm getting him back on the payroll. I mean, are we ever going to... Is, yeah, is Jim the assistant ever going to call appear- in? He gonna, and- he, he's going to make his appearance. I just can't tell you when. I can't tell you that right now. can't tell me that. can't tell you that. But, you know, somebody somebody brought it brought it up, so I want to let them know. Hey, he's coming back. He's going to make his appearance this time. Is so he now? Yeah, so y'all watch out for him. He's not coming to my house. Why ain't he? Because I don't... One, I don't think he's real. Okay. And two... Who goes by Jim the... What's his last name, Fran? What do you mean? What is his... You you just keep calling him Jim the... What's his name? Why can't we look him up? Hey, Jim the Assistant? What's it, his name? I know him by Jim the Assistant. Oh, God. You will know him by Jim the Assistant. Everybody else will. You don't need to know his info, man. Look, it's my assistant, man. His name is Jim. Leave him alone. All right, man. Are you done with that? I mean, he got... You know, he got some... Uh, he owns a company, so you, you need any... Uh, some assistance? You need... That's his got company. That, that's his that, business. His I get that comp- work. I get that work for you. you need- assistance. Yeah, he just provides assistance. Yeah, that's need- his job. That's yeah. his business. You need that? No, I don't okay. need an assistant. Well, you know, if you let, you know, I understand if you don't want to say on the His air. job is his, his business that he started is a business where he provides assistance. Yes. Let me know. Hey, All right. I, you might not want to say it on air, but hey, hey. What? <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, I don't know what you that means. I don't need an assistance with anything. Are you ready to, uh, to to to? Are you ready for these riddles? Let's go. I'm about to, I'm about to, I'm about to solve this one. Let's go. Are you now? Yes, All I right. am. Well, let's, let's go. go. Okay. And now it's time for True Crime's hottest game show. Frazzle, friend. Frazzle, friend. Frazzle, friend. Solve the riddle like no one can. If he fails, that's okay. He's a superstar either way. Look out. It's time to frazzle, friend. That's right, folks. Welcome to another episode of the hottest true crime game show in the in the streets. Frazzle Fran, the game where I try to frustrate, fluster, flummox, and frazzle my partner in true crime, Francel Evans. And Fran, we got a special one this week. Shout out to Anna Barrera coming through again. Salute to you. This is a riddle straight from her. And I recommend, because true crime riddles are starting to come pretty few and far in between, I recommend that if you find a good one that you think we haven't done before, message us. Message me, because we don't want Fran to see and be able to try to cheat and look them up in advance. Message me, and I'll try them out and see if uh, Fran can handle them. Fran, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. A woman was in her apartment. A man knocks on the door. When she opened it, he was standing there surprised. He apologized and said he thought it was his door. She immediately called 911. Why? Because he was black. No. Um. Okay. A man knocked on the door. Man knocked on the door. She opened the door. She opened the door. And she, he thought it was his apartment. Mm-hmm. And you said she was surprised or he was surprised? He was surprised. And she called 911. As soon as he said, I'm sorry, I thought this was my apartment, walks away, she immediately gets her phone, calls 911. She calls 911. 
Wait, it was in a... It was an apartment? Yes. An apartment building. I don't know what other kind of building there is. The woman was surprised. No. No, wait. He was surprised. I mean, he didn't have a key. Wait, but it wasn't his door, though. Can you read again? <laughs> a woman was in her apartment. A man knocks on the door. When she opened it, he was standing there surprised. He apologized and said he thought it was his door. She immediately called 911. Why did she do that, friend? Because she thought he was going to rob her. Am I confident with the answer? No, I'm not. But, hey, what is it? I mean, I have to give that to you, yes. Uh, the answer is, he was a thief. If it was his door, why would he have knocked? So, your not confident answer, I will allow you to uh, check that in. Sorry, Anna, we didn't get him this week. Uh, uh, Fran has uh, not been frazzled this I week. I was joking, the- I was... Completely confident in that. Right, 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 right. Yeah, sure. You just were stalling just for effect, right? Just you are you knew the whole time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um we didn't get him this week, folks. Fran for the first time in I don't know, seven weeks has no. not been frazzled. No. No. Close. No. Close. For no. the first time in quite some time has not been frazzled. <laughs> he uh has not been frazzled this week. He has retained his belt for a short time. Can I get time. some applause, please? I will stand up and back. Yeah, stand up, take your bow. So yeah, you've earned it. Uh, but we will be back again next week where I will try to once again take that belt from you and hold it over your head and laugh like that old man in that commercial. Oh, you're close. Getting close. Oh, just got to reach a little <laughs> bit more. You get, and, I, and We have another chance to frazzle him next week, folks. So if you have any riddles out there that you think will frazzle Fran, send them in to me, and we will try to stop this man. I've been Alvin Williams, joined as always by my partner in true crime, Franco Evans, and I will throw it to him as the victor of this week's Frazzle Fran to close out with whatever he wants to say. All I want to do is want to round of applause. Thank all my fans out there. You know, I studied hard this week. I, t- I told him I was going to solve this, and I did. He did. He did I stand that. up and did my bow. Um, so how are we going with the the, um, the reviews? Have we got any new reviews? We have a lot of re- new reviews. Thank you to everyone. We're at like 150 right now. Okay. It's moving pretty good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Reviews are good. Keep them coming. But yeah, thank you for the reviews that you have left. And yeah. thank you for all the um, packages that we've been sent. It's been very humbling. This is, we're coming up on a year. That's coming up in the next two episodes. Uh, we'll be ex- episode 52, our one year show. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy that we've been doing this for a year. Uh, and um, the support continues to grow, and we ap- appreciate everybody that's uh, been riding with us and c- will continue to ride with us. Shout yeah. out to you guys. Well, that's another great episode of Affirmative Murder. Um, I want to say thank you to the great host, Alvin Williams. Man, you do a great job. If I, if I haven't told you that yet. You, you, you have it. <laughs> you do a great job. I mean, I don't think I need to. Sure. No, you know, man. Cool. I'm you do a great man. job. I do my best. You know, I, I'm, the, I'm the co-host. You know, I just, you know. I'm like your bodyguard. You know, I'm here. I'm yeah, here to protect you, bro. We're in a pretty safe neighborhood, man. I don't think we need, oh, okay. you know, you, know, you, you right. provide a lot more than yeah. a bodyguard. You do stay strapped. But, yes, I um, do. You provide a lot more than that, man. And I appreciate you. And, I, you know, I hope we continue to take this journey. And I hope that this podcast continues to do well, which has been doing extremely well. 
And uh, like I said, we, we appreciate everybody that's listening right now and hope you guys continue to enjoy it. Yep. Uh, Catch y'all next time. Deuces. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.